Cold Shack Sloop podcast special interview with Rodney Barnes. After my enlightening conversation with the beautiful Helen Surtees, I ran a check through tax records and business licenses. The Max Match dating service was almost brand spanking new. No one knew where it came from or what other branches it had. It seemed to me that such mysterious origins warranted what we in the press call the midnight interview. Hello and welcome to the Kolshak Sloop Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the 1974 show, Kolshak the Night Stalker. I'm one of your hosts, Bradley. The other host is currently not here. He's probably on dog duty, uh, as if you're familiar with the podcast, he usually is. Our guest today, uh, I could go on and on about everything he's done, uh, Boondocks, uh, Everybody Hates Chris. He's currently the writer of one of the best uh, comic books out there for Image Comics, uh, Philadelphia, but I'll let him introduce himself, Mr. Rodney Barnes. Rodney, how are you doing today, man? Hey, I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, you know, it was just by chance. Uh, I hadn't, I hadn't, I sort of got out of the comic game for a while, and then somebody had said, hey, you need to check out, because I was a big fan of like Steve Niles, uh, 30 Days of Night. He did like a real good crossover with the X-Files. So I was a big fan of that. And they said, if you like vampires, you need to check this out. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. And I checked it out, and I'm flipping through, and I was like, what is this? Is this Kolshak in a book, in a comic book? <laughs> and it really surprised me, man. Um, so uh, tell me about, you know, we could start a number of places. Uh, you know, the first thing you ever remember reading was a comic book, you said, and uh, you were an only child and spent a lot of time immersed in the pages of books. Uh, and even your mom yes. was a public school teacher. You used to go to the library and read with her. But what was the, do you remember the first book you ever read, the first comic you ever read? Uh, I get asked that question a lot, and I will say that it was it was an Avengers issue somewhere between issues four and ten. Um, I don't remember which exactly which one. Um, I'm starting to fade. I think it's almost the end is near. <laughs> but um, I remember Hawkeye was very prominent in the story. Uh, because I had known, I had an idea who Captain America, Iron Man, and the Hulk were, but I didn't know who this Hawkeye guy was. I thought he was Robin Hood <laughs> because I was like six years old. Um, that, I think, was the first comic book, at least, that I remember. Maybe there were others, but yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think the experience as it got. I'm 27, so when I was a kid, I used to go to, either we'd go to Walmart to get groceries or Kroger's. We're in the South, so we'd go to Kroger's or something. Right. Kroger's had like a comic book section, and I would go, and I'd pilfer through there, and I'd read what I could. I didn't have money to com get comics, and I would get, usually go there, and I'd read through whatever I could and leave. Uh, I know you said growing up in Annapolis, Maryland, you had a little, was it like a farmer's farm store that you used to go to? Get yeah, man. We, um, uh, my grandmother lived probably a mile away, not a mile, it, it maybe a quarter of a mile away from a farm store and it had a drug store that was right across the street from it. Farm store was like a seven eleven. Yeah, yeah. And they had the classic spinner rack like I have behind me. Oh yeah, that's cool. Of comics. And then uh at the drugstore they had like a magazine section with a few comics in it. And so uh at lunchtime at school, because you could leave lunch back when I went to school, you could leave school. Uh, at lunch and then after school because it was all within a block's proximity i would just go and read um there was a period of time i'm ashamed to say when i was like eight years old that i had a kleptomania phase where i would uh 
at times, if I didn't have the money, I would get some comic books. Um, I was a Neil Adams fan. Uh, still am a Neil Adams fan. And um, I was just hooked, man. I mean, I know some people, it's drugs for some people. It was comic books for me. And so as much as I could consume, Marvel, DC, there were little companies that came out along the way. If they passed my you know, senses, I picked them up. Yeah, you talked right. about... Uh... Uh, you talked about Neil Adams. I've got, of course, with the glare, you can't see it. I've got the, ended up getting the comic uh, that he did a cover for you for. Man, what's it like having him, somebody you've looked up for, do a cover for you? Neil Adams is great. Uh, shout out to Eric James, who um, uh, helped me help make that introduction. I had met Neil at conventions before, but uh, he has a crusty bunker. He has a store out here in L.A., and um Occasionally he'll come in and he would sign and we started talking and uh, told him about the book and we made a deal and he did a cover and it was a incredible honor. It's kind of surreal in a way because um, you grow up and and I guess it's still this way today. You know, the guys, the superstar comic artists and writers, yeah. you almost feel like they're so far removed from you that, you know, you'll never meet them. And to be able to shake his hand and to be able to have a piece of work that he's attached to uh, doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I mean, now that you're a comic book writer, I know you've talked about when you were in junior high or or maybe high school, you had a uh, you had a teacher, Jay Silverberg, who sort of gave you that that drive that you had. He said that basically gave you a newspaper assignment, said you couldn't do it, and you came back the next day, had it done. And he told you that you could really do anything you wanted to, you know, and, and that helped drive you. But but then you you end up in a situation where, you know, you're sleeping in your car, living in your car. You know, you're doing these these assistant, you know, uh, production assistant jobs or whatever you're doing. Uh, and you even even once you got writing jobs, you know, you said you suffer from imposter syndrome uh, and, and there's a lot of insecurity there. And, and it's so is is what your junior high teacher is that did that help you keep going? Was there anything else that kept you going through this time? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I come from a background where, you know, unfortunately, I didn't have a very close-knit family. And so I spent a lot of time by myself. And sometimes it's a blessing, sometimes it's a curse, where when you're not getting a certain degree of, I won't say, uh, for lack of a better term, emotional support, um and you find that in fantasy, you find that in books, you find it in movies, you find it in television shows. It's great and it can help you develop a moral through line, but it doesn't give you a practical sense of confidence. And I think it makes it really difficult to develop um, a strong sense of self. And so I think for me, there have been stops along the way where people have encouraged me right when I was about to not necessarily give up, but doubt was about to uh, influence greatly the direction that I was trying to go in. So there's so many people along the way that I have to credit with keeping me on the straight and narrow, supporting me when I was down. Um, you know, and I think I've been fortunate that living in my car period never really felt like living in my car because at least I was close to what I wanted to yeah, do physically, yeah. proximity. But um, I had to learn with every step that I've made up the ladder, I've had to learn um, to be more secure with myself and develop a process and, 
you know, yeah, and, a bunch and of I think everybody, you know, a lot of people suffer from that. And, uh, you know, one thing, my dad grew up without a dad. He never really had him in his life. He left early. And he was he's always a great father to me. And I know you've talked about not having a dad. And uh, you end up reconnecting with him when you're 17, living with him. You butt heads a lot. And uh, you ended up, you know, you never really, you even said after he died that you never really got to patch things up. And I guess uh, we'll, we'll talk about Philadelphia later, talk about that in depth. But, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I've noticed is sometimes you can be too hard on yourself, I guess, when you're a dad and you didn't grow up with a dad. Do you, do you feel like you were, how do you feel like you adjusted to that? I mean, was it, I mean, it, it's definitely a learning curve. Definitely. You know, not having a father. I, I think there's, I think there's a duality in it. I think it's what you said. Um, sometimes you overcompensate, uh, to be better, but still there. And, you know, it's funny. One of the themes in Philadelphia is coming up in a, in one of the episodes, uh, episodes, issues, um, issue 17 is where, uh, you know, you carry, unfortunately, some of the sins, sins of the father, so to speak, you know, even when you try to be different, you still have some of the stuff that influenced the trauma that I guess you, um, had imposed upon you when you came along and you know i think it's i think it's easier for me for a couple of reasons you know when you get older and you have your own kids and you get past personalizing the things that happened to you i think it's easier to forgive i think it's easier to put into perspective and not necessarily create a narrative around the narrative that keeps it going and it's easier to understand that, you know, maybe those people that didn't necessarily um, give you exactly what you needed, that they had their stuff too, that they went through things as well. And I think being able to forgive and to put it all into perspective helps it helps make you a better parent, but also a better person um, as you go on in life. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I couldn't help but notice your shirt. You've got a William Shakespeare shirt. That's Yes. That's cool. Yes, um, I do. I'm very, uh, a very big fan. And and you know, so the first thing, being the person that I am that I think of when I think of William Shakespeare is I remember the Batman '66 series with Adam West. Uh, do you remember yes. the bust? I know you said you weren't yes. a big fan of that. You you felt it felt too childish sometimes, especially well, compared to Neil <clears throat> Adams stuff. You know. Well, that was the yeah. thing. Yeah, the Neil Adams stuff that I got turned on to. Batman was sort of kind of like James Bond. Yeah. Like he had. You know, especially when he, uh, when Ra's al Ghul and um, Talia, you know, came into the picture, those stories were more grounded into an action, serious detective thing. And then the Adam West thing was so jokey (laughs) that there was none of that. And, you know, there was one episode I remember where Bruce Lee was on when the Green Hornet and Kato uh, fought Batman and Robin um, that I thought was pretty cool. But for the most part, I watched it because it was all I had. Yeah. It was that, and there was a Saturday morning cartoon. Uh, I don't know if it was a Super Friends before then, but I think it was the Batman Superman hour. Yeah, yeah. And he was a little closer to Batman than I knew, but it still wasn't. It was still kind of kiddie, kid-friendly. Um, but, yeah, I, I always yearn for the evolution that it's taken by the time you get to the Christopher Nolan films. That was sort of the Batman I always wanted him to be. Yeah, so – before the Christopher Nolan films, the '89 Batman. What do you think about the '89 Batman? Because that's like, so I was. I liked it. I liked it. Liked it. I liked yeah. the sequel, the Batman Returns one with the Penguin better because yeah. it was a little bit darker. 
Um, but I liked it. I liked it. Okay. Um, and, you know, talking about, you know, you started out writing, uh, I guess, more uh, not more comedy stuff, you know, Boondocks, which, you, you know, uh, one of my best friends is black. So we sort of watch Boondocks. And I'm sort of like, am I allowed to watch this being what? You know, you know, all in jest, of course, but me and him. You know. Yes. But then, you you know, you had your health crisis from uh, 2010 to 2014 where, you know, you really thought, you, you know, it could be that, you know, it could be you could die. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then you decided that you were going to write from your heart and, you know, not write for a paycheck. Uh, and then eventually you ended up working on runaways with Jeff Loeb. Uh, so, and, and, and stuff like that. And that sort of gave you a comic break. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is as far as that goes, do you think like the universe, you've also said that if a door opens, you'll go through it, but do you think that sometimes the universe opens doors or, or do you th- do you think that's like something that somebody lines up, or is it just all chance? I guess. I definitely think, uh, like Goethe, that the universe conspires to work with you when you're yeah. working with it. Um, a lot of opportunities, certainly even as of late, have come to me just because I started a path. I mean, when I did the Falcon comic book at Marvel, my first book, um, and I think it shows in some areas, I had no idea what I was doing. But between Falcon, Lando, and Queen Credible, I sort of began to learn how to work with an artist, how to say more with less, how to um, just how to write a comic book. You know, everything I'd known up until that point was television and film. And so it was um, it was an adjustment. It was certainly an adjustment. And my voice for comic books was really more of an 80s voice. Um, yeah. During the 90s, I was, you know, raising kids and trying to figure out what I was going to do in my life. So I wasn't I was buying comics, but I wasn't reading them as much. Yeah. So I'd sort of taken my finger off the pulse of what they had become. And I think the movies have influenced them, the influence, the pacing, influenced the art, influenced everything from when I was a huge fan. And um I had to make adjustments along the way as well. You know, you're 100% right on that. Like, I feel like comic books used to be a lot more talky, more dialogue-heavy, yes. man. And oh, if you look at those Burn Claremont <laughs> X-Men, that's a lot of words. Yes. That's a lot of – and the Alan Moore Swamp Thing, who I oh, love. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. Words. We'll talk about that later. I got yeah, it in the document. a lot of words. Yeah, but and, – and it's more like, I guess – and it's sort of like maybe the attention span's not as it, – it's more fast-paced. Yes. Today's more fast-paced. Everything's more fast-paced. Uh, You know – um, even one of my favorite shows, you know, I don't know, talk about land, you know, you did, uh, you did Falcon and it was, you know, it was, I was a good book. I thought, of course, I, I know you talked about getting lambasted on Twitter over it and stuff, but. Oh yeah. I had a bad weekend. <laughs> I had one bad week. But you know, uh, and it, you did Lando and, and you, what was it like doing Lando having, uh, I guess bringing this, uh, character, somebody like, you know, uh. Billy Billy D. Williams originally did him, but now you even have uh, Childish Gambino, Donald Glover. Uh, what was that? Like? It was easier. It was easier than Falcon because when I was doing Falcon, I was really doing things I'd always wanted to do more so than doing Falcon. I was writing from outside of the story and trying to squeeze Falcon in. Whereas with Lando, I'm a Star Wars fan yeah. as well, and I really enjoyed the tone of the movie. And I knew the tone of the movie. The movie almost felt like um, the Star Wars movies almost feel like episodes of within like they go from um, 
how can I say it? Uh, I get the term. Uh, they go from big moment to big moment to big moment to big moment. And it's not like if you compare A New Hope to what the Star Wars movies are now, like the pacing is completely, it's almost like a, a Fast and Furious yeah, movie. Yeah. They move so fast that um, they go from thing to thing to thing. And so I knew how to do that. And I just made the Lando movie, uh, the Lando book, in the tone and the spirit and the pacing of what the solo movie was. And that was relatively easy. Yeah, and uh, right before I bring my co-host in, I got one more little little thing about uh, Childish Gambino, Donald Glover. Uh, I really loved the the Lando, uh, the solo movie. I thought he was really, really good in it. And I know a lot of people had some qualms mm-hmm. about it because I'm like an old school Star Wars fan too, but I grew up with the original trilogy. But, I mean, you've got to take it as something different. And uh, I was also going to ask your opinion. I went and saw him, him in Nashville, and he did an amazing concert. But I really love Atlanta. Mm-hmm. What did you, did you, have you seen Atlanta or watched any of it? Yeah, I love Atlanta. Uh, I'm working with Lakeith Stanfield. Oh, really, right man? Now. That's cool. Yeah. And um, I love Atlanta. I love the creativity of Atlanta. I love the pacing of Atlanta. It doesn't aspire to be anything other than what it yeah. is. And oftentimes when you see um, shows like that, they sort of feel like um, there are other things that, you know, someone saw something and said, hey, we should do something like that about Atlanta. But this is Atlanta is completely different. It's its own thing. And you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, you, so I love yeah it. you'll have like a three little episode arc where everything's going fine. Then you'll have an arc where they go get a piano from, from this yeah. guy's mansion. Dude, that yes. episode is crazy. Uh, hey, yes. Robert, do you want to jump in here? We, we just got finished talking about background. So wherever you want to go, if you want to jump into we are a Cold Shack podcast. So I guess we do have to talk <laughs> about Cold Shack. Well, I mean, Ronnie, all I want to do is just bow. I just, I just seriously, man. I know. Uh-huh. And I, I, to, I saw you tell other people that. If you know we set the bar that high, you're in trouble. But I, yeah, exactly, exactly. As soon as you bow, I start saying, "Okay, well, you're, you're, I'll you're 20 days my senior." <laughs> so that's I, I looked you up and I was like, "He's got to be close to my age, man." Yes. And, and and I think yes. it sounds to me like you probably had a very similar Kolchak experience that I did, or as Jeff Rice's son oh. says, Kolchak experience like i did yes and uh when did you first see it who i spoke to today i spoke to him today oh that's to amazing james rice he and i had a conversation today we actually i told him i was doing this tonight that's awesome so you know there you go um what was my experience like i can tell you that it was the most profound experience television experience i had as a kid that's saying a lot for someone, you know, Star Trek to Gene yeah. Roddenberry, Star Trek, all of that stuff, Twilight Zone, Night Gallery, oh, all yeah. these other things. And I'm not saying it just because I'm here talking to you guys, but those two movies of the week, um, they framed my childhood. And I'll throw in Salem's Lot, the miniseries as well, as being, yes, as part of that, um, David So, yep. maybe because he was Starsky, uh, yep. the Starsky and Hutch uh, influence. But. Those three things, those two Kolshak movies of the week and Salem's Lot sort of put me on a path that I couldn't shake. And I tried to like I tried to um, do other things, think about other things. Um, you know, I was saying earlier, well, I said earlier today on another thing that, um, you know, sitcoms came to me. I really wasn't looking for sitcoms. Uh, it was a door that opened and I walked in and I'm incredibly grateful for them. 
But when you talk about working from your heart yeah. and what you really love, um, and I was expressing this to, to James today, um, Richard Matheson and General Kolshak, it was the perfect like storm of everything that I loved. Um, you know, Kolshak had the perfect blend of just enough comedy, um, just enough passion as an investigative reporter. And the way Matheson's tone of adding in enough social stuff so it doesn't feel like medicine, like he's saying something, but it's not hitting you over the head, um, and still sticking mm -hmm. true to genre in a very sophisticated way that felt like the Hammer films and felt like some of the stuff that had preceded it was, it was exactly what, it was what Stephen King became for me later, um, you know, as I was a teenager and got into him. But before that, it was, uh, this was it, you know, and, and I remember going out afterwards, I was that kid who uh, would read credits. And when I saw that Richard Matheson had written it, um, I went out and I bought like, I am legend. Yeah. And, you know, he became my guy uh, for a long time. And, you know, looked up that he had done night gallery episodes. And back then there wasn't like now where you can just push a button and get anything you want. I would right. track them down and um, the Twilight Zone episodes that he had written. And I was that kid. But Shack, nothing ever topped Kolshak. And, you know, I was with Constantine Nazar, a friend of mine who's doing the behind the scenes uh, stuff mm -hmm. for the Blu-ray. Yeah. Um, the DVD. And I, we reviewed uh we went through and did the devil's right. platform um and uh that's how i got connected you know all of that connected to james but um but yeah man i've that was my that was my hook and i so did you did you see it like like i actually remember seeing it when i was six so when it came out so you saw yeah, it at that I same was, time so do we, yeah. we were watching it at yeah, the same time I, <laughs> 10 o'clock, I think it was 10 o'clock on, was it ABC or CBS? I forget. Right. It's only three channels. And oh. I know it wasn't NBC, but it was so it was one or the other. Um, but I remember sitting up waiting. And it was funny because back then you got a TV guy. That's how you learned about everything. Mm -hmm. And they had a full page ad that I actually have somewhere on my phone, um, the picture of it yeah. that someone posted in a cold oh, shack, yeah. one of those groups. But uh I remember seeing the ad and the creepy ad of Kolshak coming that, this Friday night at, you know, nine o'clock or whatever and staying up waiting to see Kolshak. And my grandfather, I grew up a lot with my grandparents and my grandfather was the guy that he mm -hmm. it was his TV. And except when he was asleep <laughs> and I I had to watch Gunsmoke and Mannix and, you know, and all of the uh, uh, medical center with Chad Everett and um all of those shows I had to watch because he watched them. But this was the one time that I put my little foot down, little at the time. <laughs> I'm going to watch this thing. And I just let everybody know that the television is, television is mine this Friday night from 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock. I'll go to bed right after, mm -hmm. but I got to watch this thing. So, yeah, man. That's great. That, well, I, yeah, that's cool that I, you got – Yeah, I, that I, you, Sorry, I, I just – I stumbled into it because my dad loved horror films. And, you know, I was only six mm -hmm. and all they had to do to tell me that something was scary. And I immediately hid under, a, you know, an end table near a near a near a uh, couch. And that was like the way I would just sort of like barely let myself watch it because that was like my protected space. And and I there's just yes. a, a couple clips. 
but I still, you know, have the memory of, you know, various parts of that one. And then still, I don't, I don't think I saw the strangler. Um, I'm pretty sure I didn't yeah. see that because even when I saw that recently, it all looked kind of new to me. And I would have known that Oscar Goldman was the bad guy in the strangler. Cause I haven't watched yeah. so much $6 million man. But, um, yeah, when the Ripper came on and scenes of that, and then, you know, Spanish moss murders and, you know, bad medicine and all the ones that came on and on and on. Yeah, that was absolutely the best thing for me. But it was, I guess, luckily it was driven by my dad, who was the one who wanted to do it. But just like you're saying, there's one set in the house. I mean, there's no cable. There's no yeah. multiple TV sets. I mean, if anything's on, mm. everybody watches it. And, you know, and it, and somehow yes. I think he just let all curfews go. And everybody was able to stay up and watch the show my dad wanted to watch. Yeah, my stepfather, uh, ironically, the thing he gave me that was of use of value to me was he, too, used to watch like Creature mm. Features at 1130 mm-hmm. over the weekends. So the Hammer films, uh, the Universal Monster films, the Claude Rains, Lon Chaney Jr., Bella Lugosi, all of that stuff. I watched all of that stuff um, coming up. So, you know, uh, again, I said this earlier that um, I almost feel like I went to film school as a kid because there were so many things that, that framed a lot of different references for me just because I was, I was an addict of television. So the rhythm of how you tell a story, certainly back then more so than now, because the pacing is different. You have to sort of uh, compensate for attention spans being different because everything moves so quickly. Um, But back then it was classic and, I was uh, I was happily and fortunately and grateful that I was indoctrinated into it in right. a period of time I was. Yeah. You know, that's that's cool that you I, I messaged James a couple of days ago. Have you been when, how long have you been in contact? Today was the first actual day. Yeah. Um, uh, I've been trying to reach out to him. I've been working uh, the TV show that I'm on now. Uh, I've been acting this week. This week I was an actor. Oh, um, and incredibly busy, so I didn't have time. I actually wanted to reach out to him a week ago. But, um, but yeah, it was a great conversation uh, via text, but it was a great conversation, and um, I heard great things about him. And, you know, yeah. talking about stuff. Yeah, that's cool. Trying to do stuff. I, I messaged him the, yesterday, and I was like, hey, man, there's this guy, Rodney Barnes. Philadelphia is amazing. You need to see if he can get a comment. <laughs> and he said, oh, I'll check him out. And then... It's sort of fate, I guess, that you message him hey, independently man. the next day. Th- those doors open, the universe opening things up. Uh, well, the thing that you alluded to earlier about, you know, the universe. And for me, again, to be able to have anything to do, even when I did that commentary a couple of weeks ago, to have anything to do with Shack is one of those things when I, you had mentioned when I said I was going to work from my heart. One of those things I said to myself was if I had the opportunity to get back into the business again and do this stuff, that I was going to reconnect to things that moved my heart. And Cold Shack was one of those things. And I mean, between that, I think, again, Richard Matheson, um, Cold Shack, meaning Jeff Rice, um, and Stephen King were sort of kind of my world. Yeah. And Having had the opportunity, because I was Michael Clark Duncan standing on the Green Mile, yes. and that's another story in and of itself. 
but uh, only because I really wanted to meet Stephen King. Yeah. Um, and I have this thing where I want to meet my heroes. Um, good, bad, or indifferent, and Stephen King was yeah. incredible. I've seen that picture of you together, but, uh, the, the one. With yeah, the man, that was one of the greatest days of my yeah. life. Um, that was the just got out of my car, living in my car uh, picture. And he was so gracious and he was so cool that those were the things when you were asking me before about, you know, why did you keep going when things were tough? was once you meet your heroes and you sort of get an opportunity to see that it's real, once you see that it's real, to me, it reinforced that it was possible. And it just meant continuing on when things were difficult and fighting through uh, whatever obstacle was in front of me. But I, like I said, I had certain things that would guide me along the way, the way right when um, things got their toughest. Yeah, um, and let's go down that Stephen King rabbit trail. We we might as well. Yes. Um. So yes. You know, I want you to talk about your love of Stephen King because you used all your grass cutting money to buy Carrie and uh, Splinter in the Mind's Oh Eye. yeah. And man, you've done your research. You have done your research. You, yes. you continue to buy paperbacks to this day of Stephen King. What what draws you I to do. King, man? Just just tell me about it. What he did was, you know, horror that I a lot of the horror that I'd read as a kid was either gothic horror or it spoke to like England or things that I couldn't necessarily relate to. I still dug them, but it wasn't personal. Yeah. It didn't feel like, um, your culture was represented it, sort of. It wasn't so much just my culture, but just in general, it felt so lofty and aloof yeah. that it didn't connect in a way that resonated with me. Um, you know, like Bram Stoker's Dracula. You know, it was the way that the structure of the book, the letters and the different things, it just didn't even Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's like I dug the books, but they didn't have that same like Kolshak felt possible. Yeah, it felt like a world that I knew or at least resembled a world that was close to the one that I knew. Stephen King was that for me as well. When he spoke from a place of trauma and he spoke most of. You know, Carrie was an abused girl, even though she had the issues that she had. The Torrance family was a um, was basically going through a divorce or going through a, a problematic situation. Um, you know, you can go down the list of most of the books and at the center of them was some type of family, real grounded issue that one or more of the characters were going through that was human. And they would extend out into you would get into the supernatural stuff later. But. The foundation was still certainly with the um, the protagonist in the story. There was something there was an entry point emotionally co to connect with that individual. And I was just watching. I watched a little bit of uh, Misery. Today. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it, there were issues, you know, you got mental health stuff. You got um, just things that felt real to me that I could relate to. I think the first one after Carrie, I may have said this in interviews, but the dead zone was the next one. And it was something about the dead zone that connected with me because it was this period that I had gone through where uh, this, there were a bunch of books coming out about um, Nostradamus and the end of the world. Yes. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was uh, that period. I remember documentaries and stuff. And when I, uh, Jeff Stilson, uh, that that character sort of um, harkened to that period of time. And so it just felt like Stephen King was pressing a lot of buttons 
that were directly connected. Like Salem's Lot was a small town, uh, was set in a small town. I grew up in a small town. And so my imagination, what if, you know, that happened here? Um, it just, he kept, he kept just hitting, ringing the right bell. Yeah. I, I just love Dead Zone. Um, that, that was such a great film. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know how many times Martin Sheen is going to play somebody who can creep you out, you know, in another role, actually make you love him, mm-hmm. you know, back and forth. But man, that guy, he was so intense in that. And, uh, of course, Christopher Walken. So good. Yes. That's what I was going to say. The great Christopher Walken. Yeah. Um, the ice is <laughs> going to break. Yeah. But yes, <laughs> Yes. So, yeah, that's my Christopher Walken. There are others that do it better, but that was my Christopher Walken. And uh, one of King's books that, uh, you know, me and and Robert sort of – so we, for some reason, we we both – last week I think we talked on the – we talked about a Kolshak episode. We got into diagramming sentences. (laughs) Uh, Because I'm a former English teacher. And I'm an English English tutor in in college, and one of my go-to books was uh, Stephen King's On Writing. And it was yes. it was pretty much I love that. it was the Bible of uh, hey if you want to write you know this is your this is a good starting point so I, I would recommend it to everybody um, and it helped me I listen to it once a year on uh, Audible oh yeah yeah so I, and while I'm driving just to listen to it but yeah, yeah so uh, could do we talk about that did it help how did it help you writing what did you gain from it again there's a thing you know there's there's something about King growing up the way that he did. Um, Poor, dad leaving, um, trying to figure it out, um, you know, trauma, just different things that there was something about him and his writing that just felt relatable and real. And his characters that came across in the writing as well. And, you know, Edgar Allan Poe is great. You know, Lovecraft, although problematic, is great. Um you know, a, a lot of those, the classic guys were great, but guys like Richard Matheson and Stephen King just made it feel like it was current. You know, it just felt like they were speaking to the world that I lived in. And um, both with the monster and both with the people. And so, yeah, man, it was one of the greatest honors. If you knew what I went through, I don't know if you've done that research. If you knew what I went through, to get that job on that movie, um, that's a movie in and of itself. But, hey, well, tell us about it, man. I, I would love to hear about it. I don't know if I've listened to, I listened to a lot of interviews. I didn't hear you mention that. I may have missed it. Well, thank you. Um, uh, shout out to Constantine Nazar, who actually uh, was doing, who did the behind the scenes stuff uh, for Shack, who invited me to do it. That's where we met. He was doing um, that for the Green Mile as well. But um I was working on a movie, Stigmata. I was a production assistant. Another good one. Oh, man, that's, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes, yeah. Gabriel Byrne, uh, Neil Long, and some other folks. And I saw in The Hollywood Reporter that they were doing this movie, The Green Mouth, that I had read. Oh, my God, it's Stephen King. And they were looking for large black men. And I'm a large black man. <laughs> Check one. And, <laughs> yes, there you go. That's all I needed. Couldn't act. Didn't know anything about it, but I got one one big check uh, off the list. And so uh, I'm like, this is my opportunity. It, that's how my brain worked to meet Stephen King. Maybe I don't get to part, but who knows? Maybe he's auditioning the John Coffees, and maybe you know somehow, some way, I can make this happen. Yeah. 
So I talked about it enough that I found out the information came to me again, talking about the universe, that the transportation captain on Stigmata was going to go and be the transportation captain on the Green Mile. Yeah. So I went to this gentleman and begged, what can you do to help me? Could you put in a good word for me? Blah, 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 blah. He said, well, you know, I'm just a transportation guy. I can't necessarily do that, but I, I will do this. I've got to go see Frank Darabont in a couple of minutes with this 1939 Patty Way. <laughs> Maybe you could get in the back to give some sense of proximity to the large black man in the back of the pet. <laughs> yes, yes, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And we're in Southern California, and it was the summer, oh, yeah. so it was very, very hot. So by the time we got to Frank, I looked like an inmate. I may not have looked like John Coffee, but I certainly looked like the type of person that you put security systems in your home. And um, I jumped. It was uh, David Valdez, Frank Darabont, and the line producer, whose name I always forget. And um, I jumped out of the back, scared the shit out of everybody. <laughs> and the transportation captain, it's a good thing he was there. He's like, no, 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 no. He's here to, da, 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 to do the thing and whatever. And so I immediately went to Frank because uh, I knew Shawshank Redemption. And I had read his book. He had a book, a companion book that had come out that he had done um, that went with the Shawshank Redemption. So I sort of kind of knew a little bit of his history as well. And uh, he had been a production assistant and a set dresser and he had done the blob and different things. And so immediately all of my Frank Darabont facts, I threw at Frank Darabont. And he was so impressed that I wanted to be a part of this that badly and was a fan of King and everything that on the spot, he made me to stand in for the guy that hadn't gotten casted yet. So from that day forward, I quit Stigmata. From that day forward, um, I would come in and when they had camera tests for the Green Mile, the actual cell itself, when they had auditions for the guys with Sean McBride, Bill Duke, and Michael Clark Duncan, I walked all of them from the parking lot to the set and you know this is where your marks are this is what you do da 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 and you know for the next six months um it was like a family uh, bernie wrightson did some of the design work he gave me a frankenstein portfolio oh, was a huge bernie wrightson fan he was next to neil adams he was sort of my guy yeah. too because he did monsters. yeah he was a big horror guy back then. Um, yeah yes and so everybody on that set was somebody and i had known Tom Hanks a little bit because I worked on Forrest Gump as yeah. a production assistant as well. And he was as kind as you could possibly be. And after like a month and a half, um, Michael wasn't doing his off-camera work. So they let me do his off-camera work. Again, I'm not an actor. Um, but the honor of being able to watch these great actors, because everybody there from Michael Jeter, um, you know, Everybody, everybody was someone um, to be able to just be in that environment every day sort of had a profound effect on me. Um, again, you know, finally, I got to meet Stephen King. But there was this thing where you when you're dealing with the best of the best, it causes you to take a hard look at yourself and to say, A, I want to be like this one day. And what does it take to get there? And it's not so much where people put an arm around me and say, son, this is what you do. But if you observe people's the process that people go through doing the discipline and the focus that they go through doing what they do, 
I think it has a profound, it had a profound effect on me. And I knew I needed to change. I needed to evolve what I was doing to even have a shot and to one day get to where these great men and people uh, were. So all of it culminated with the biggest day of my life when I had all of my Stephen King collections from worn out little books to really nice first editions that I'd taken my check and bought it like Barnes and Nobles. And when Stephen King came and I saw him in the hallway and he was by himself and I'm sure he talked to me um, a good 20 minutes longer than he wanted to, <laughs> but I wasn't going to let him leave. He was incredibly kind. Um, that picture, they're going to bury that picture that I have with him. They're going to put it in my coffin. Um, he, it, the funny, the set photographer said, I took 100 pictures of Stephen King that day. Rodney is in 89 of them. Um, I just followed him around every conversation. I'm just listening. I'm just absorbing it. It was just um, it was just great, man. It was just a great experience all the way around. Yeah, I'm going to ask one more question about King, and then, we, Robert, you can, yeah. we can go back to it's, Cold it's Shack okay. if you want to. I'm, I'm, I'm in the zone, yeah. man. I'm loving every single bit of this. You, just, you, just, you guys just keep rolling with it. You know, uh, I haven't. You said you've read. I know you keep up to. You're you're up to date on King. You've have you finished last yet? Yeah, uh, later. Later. Oh, what? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I finished later. Um, I'm waiting for Billy Summers. Comes out uh, two weeks. Yeah, from I'm now. still stuck. I think I'm on the Institute. I'm a little ways into it. I, I, yeah, I'm done. Yeah, yeah so you're way. You're way back. I'm way back. You're way I'm back. Way back. Uh, yeah, but man. let's go even further back. Something a book I I think was my favorite King book. In a long time was uh, Doctor Sleep. I thoroughly enjoyed Doctor Sleep, man, and I thought the movie was really well done. But uh, there's something about the book that I loved, and I think it was even better than The Shining. Personally, I don't. Oh, that's heresy. It probably is. Um, that is heresy. I'm gonna call somebody when I get off here to come and get you. Um, just to it. shake you really hard. Um. I dug Doctor Sleep because I got an opportunity. I'm sort of sentimental. When King one time was talking about uh, doing a sequel to uh, Salem's Lot and like those types of things, um, I always loved. But Doctor Sleep, there were things I loved about it and things that I didn't hate yeah. and I didn't dislike. But whatever the word between like and eh is, I haven't come up with that word yet. But the energy vampire thing was cool, but I wanted ghosts again. I wanted ghosts like The Shining. Yeah. I wanted it to be like that. And I know it was more about family. And I know, and the thing that I loved about it was when Danny went to AA in the end, and he finally mustered the courage to be a spoiler alert. He finally uh, mustered up the courage to... Um, in group speak up and talk about the things that he had done that he was ashamed of. And he found out that, you know, there was no reaction because everybody in that room had done something that they were ashamed of or some guilt and shame that they carried. Um, it was almost about forgiveness, which yeah. is a big thing for me. I thought that was beautiful. I thought the little clips of the moments with Holleran and, you know, his mom and all of that stuff. I love that stuff. So, like I said, it's more of a 70-30 one for me. Um, I was just happy to get more shiny. Yeah. 
Uh, Robert, what do you want to go with this? You want to talk about the Twilight Zone or what? Yeah, I was actually I was thinking about that when I was walking my dog. I was like, I wonder if I can sneak in the Twilight Zone conversation and we can record that for my other show. Yes. So Brad Bradley is a hey, hey. constant contributor to um, something that we have called Entering the Fifth Dimension, and it's a Twilight Zone podcast. Mm-hmm. And um, we got okay. uh, Mark Twidziak on there one of the first times, and he talked all about his Twilight Zone book and. And of course, on that one, I asked him a Colshack uh, question. <laughs> that's who connected that's who figured, me with James. Yeah, yeah Mark. Yeah, yes, Mark. That's who connected it's, me. It's um, a good two years ago or more. Um, I was in those Colshack sites, and I, I kept seeing the information mm-hmm. he was saying. And then I, I looked him up, and I, I, re- I realized who he was. And I remember seeing those Colshack books in 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 the the bookstores. When I was, you know, younger and like an idiot, I didn't buy them then. Like I really, yeah, I know. Yeah. Yes, and now they're like 200 bucks now. I'm looking for one because oh, I have well, one here. I'm Robert, like, yeah, you Rodney, this, he's, you mean this Brad, book that Bradley's you don't like have, Bradley's like flashing buddy? his right now on the camera just, just to taunt us. Uh-oh, hold on. Yes, yes. And I think I have one as well, and there's a couple downstairs. <laughs> but as yeah, well. so so anyway, yes. long story short, I, I get on the, that site and I just say I don't know if anybody understands how lucky we are to have Dewidziak on here. I mean this this guy is so <laughs> vital to keeping the legacy of Kolshak alive. Blah blah blah. Um, I get a I get a private message from Mark within an hour of that, and as essentially thank you for doing that. Um, I just got a you know some. A, a terse message from one of the administrators of one of the sites because they didn't like what I wrote about something. And, and next thing I know, Mark and I bonded. And from there, um, I started asking him questions about James and Jeff and the legacy that, you know, we have with uh coal shack and where Jeff Rice fits in all that. And that's when really, I told Bradley, it's like, you know, I'd really like to do a coal shack podcast and, but I'm not going to do it unless I can get the coal shack name, um, legitimately, I'm not just going to take it. I'm not going to mm-hmm. just throw my name out there. And the, and the funny thing is, as I say, Bradley, I don't want to do that because we're going to be big, man. At some point, we're going to be so big. <laughs> somebody's going to come looking for a paycheck because we've taken the name and, you know, in my, my own dreams. Mm-hmm. But as, as it turned out, two years later, <laughs> James contacted me and, and we've been texting back and forth ever since and con- constant contact with Mark and, and uh, we'll, we'll have to send you a link to the interview we just posted with him uh, where we went 90 minutes. And I tell you, the yeah. funny thing here, I don't think this is going to happen between me and you. I wish it would. But between James and Bradley, um, I all of a sudden was the third wheel. Now, I'm the one who's setting up all these things. <laughs> it was almost the same thing with the Wizziak. Like, once again, I'm setting all this stuff up. Yeah, I'm just in the background, man. Because these, these guys, you just turn it up and they go. So, but anyway, um, I, I think it's, it's thrilling to me that you're talking to James about something and, uh, I want to, phew, uh, that, that, that's blowing I, me away. I, I, I can't tell you how much, um, like I said, I have this sentimental thing where, um, I love the character. I think there are parallels. There are things that that character could do in today's world and talk yep. about in today's world. And, and there's a tone that I think you could drop that character into in today's world that would work seamlessly. And I think more often than not, when I see material on Kolshak, not disparaging anyone, that sometimes they either lean too much on the monster or they lean too much on the jokes. And 
I think that there again the Richard Matheson formula. Um, you, I know why you got to be Richard Matheson, which I'm not, in order to be able to duplicate it or build off of it. But there's something in that that I really think fits mm-hmm. in today's world. I think you know there's a degree of cynicism, there's a degree of questioning authority, there is um, there's something about an evenness in survival that I think exists in corporate America, where if you find one guy who's incredibly passionate about something, that that passion could sort of ignite a character, almost like Indiana Jones in a yeah. way, where there are a lot of archaeologists, but you don't see a lot of them going through what Indiana Jones is going through to get to the Holy Grail. You know, he's not battling uh, the Nazis, you know, in order to, to get an artifact. Um, and Kolchak was sort of mm-hmm. kind of that character. You know, he had this, I'm going to risk my own welfare, health and welfare in order to be able to, uh, health and well-being in order to be able to, um, to find out what this yeah, is. And he, and he never um, has that conversation. He never shows that conversation happening. He just goes, no. man. Yes. There, there is so he just much goes initiative in, in that character. Yes. And, and, you know, and I love what yes. James said with us was that he feels like Kolshak was his dad's way of coming up with his alter ego. And it was the person that he wanted to be mm-hmm. and the person he wanted other people to be. And, and this is beautiful. And I think guys like us, I think guys like us that are here, you know, talking about that later is because all of us have an aspect of that within us. But you have to be able to write to and speak to that in order to be able to really feel that character. And I think, you know, anytime that there's something that's great and you have um, people who build on like sequels in a movie, the Jaws movie, you know, the Jaws, for example, the original. And then you look at Jaws 7 or Jaws 3D or Jaws whatever. The thing that you've lost was it really Never. wasn't about the shark. Never. You know, Never. it really was about, you know, the the sheriff and him, you know, dealing with his own fears and his family and this and, you know, coming to terms with all of that stuff. And that's yeah. how I look at Kolshak. You know, I look at Kolshak as certainly a love letter to the time. But to me, that's what the greatest stuff in genre isn't necessarily about the monster. It's about the Van Helsing that's after the monster and what's the thing that's driving him because that's the that's the thing that's i'm connecting to because i can't connect to the monster other than fear but who am i rooting for and why am i rooting for this individual um that's what i'm looking for and i'm looking for the humanity in that person kolshak had all of that and it was sort of tongue-in-cheek and to me the jokes sort of um almost were a defense mechanism to what was going on inside of the guy. The passion was the thing. What was, you know, the jokes were the thing that was almost like, if I don't do, if I don't have a sense of humor, I will be afraid of the Mm -hmm. vampire or the devil or this or the that or the whatever. So I kind of have to use my humor on with my courage to get me to jump into the, the mix of whatever it is that I'm dealing with. And again, I think a lot of people who try to do things with Kolshak, you know, it focuses on one aspect or the other, but there's so many other dimensions that I think could be. Yeah, explored. no, I agree so, with you 100%. Maybe. And we've, we we're, we're still landing on a structure for us in the podcast on the categories that we talk about. But just like we do in the uh, Twilight Zone podcast, I want to make sure we have sort of a social 
aspect, um, so, social sciences or, or social importance of what's happening in that scene. You know, and I, and I was blown away that in uh, the the second one with the zombie, that the police captain actually mm-hmm. makes a statement that these people are Haitians. We have to be very sensitive to you know them being out there. We can't just accuse them of everything. I mean, that's sort of a '70s consciousness um, that that is coming through mm-hmm. there. And uh, but, you know, being someone who lived through that and understood that um, it, it just rung with mm-hmm. me so quickly when I saw it again as an adult. It's like, wow, I had no idea they ever made that you know choice to uh, to say that. And then as you see more episodes, there are those possibilities of, you know, so- social commentary that are there. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just and I think that's necessary. Right. And that sort of is the thing that makes it um that makes it special. Yeah, it's there, there. There's your, you know, your recipe for heart. <laughs> you've you've got to have, mm-hmm. you know, a connection to it that, that's bigger than and connection to the time. Just 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 the monster bigger than those things. It's that that universal truth that we all have. That uh, you know yes. you're really looking to bond. You know, Robert, with. I think you stumbled into a perfect uh, segue there, talking about character, Did and I? Uh, I wanted to talk about how you have sort of changed the vampire, or or maybe adapted the vampire is a more apt term. So you know, talk about adapting the vampire, changing the vampire to what you want. Uh, you know, you've said that your vampire were influenced by you know Bram Stoker's Dracula, Salem's Lot, the Hammer films, uh, among other sources, including what we talked about the Night Stalker and uh, Blackula, mm-hmm. uh, which I think that was a uh, you saw that in 1978 or 1979. Your mom took you to the theater. I did. And Double feature. Blackula and Scream, Scream, Blackula Scream. Yes. Yeah, and uh, I've noticed that you know, sort of your your vampires have a an, an, a unique species within the genus of vampires in a whole, like in Philadelphia in the universe. Like you have the sophisticated vampires, for lack of a better term, and the ravenous vampires that are reminiscent of like Salem's Lot. Is is that the case, or is it more of like a anthropomorphic sort of like Jupiter is, where you have a sophisticated vampire but they transform into like a ravenous vampire? No, I think the thing is all of, for the most part, the top tier vampires are driven by whatever was haunting them in life. Yeah. If um, a lot of this came from uh, again, I wasn't as close to my father as I would have liked to have been. And after he passed, I wondered if we'd had more time with me being older and him maybe having um, evolved a little bit because of time himself, would we have been able to patch up some of our stuff? And when you want to apply that principle to genre, you can't do it with a with a zombie because they don't they don't have a lot of feelings, those zombies. And Mummies don't. You can go down a list of monsters and vampires, though, you know, certainly the Anne Rice style of vampires. They're very thoughtful. You know, they're very they're thinking they're calculating. They have stuff going on and they're sort of haunted by their past as well. So I wanted to create vampires who still had a shade of the core of who they were, the core of how their minds work, was connected to a lot of the trauma of their lives, who they were when they were people, that they couldn't shake that part. They still needed, because I always thought vampires were a waste. They were wasting some stuff because it was just about getting blood. Like, I wake up, I got to go drink some blood, and then I go back to sleep. And I thought you could use that time in the coffin, uh, and I thought that there has to be some other purpose to immortality than just finding blood and finding victims. And I wanted to create a vampire who sort of was as much a spiritual creature, dark or light, as he was a monster. 
and the thing that made him monstrous, like Jupiter is anger. You know, Jupiter is based on a real character that I found about Jupiter about Evans. Him. Yeah. And yeah. And history. And, um, I always want the anger that is attached the trauma that's attached from slavery. I believe manifests in a lot of the stuff that we're going through today and certain uh, throughout America. And I wanted to give a voice to that. I wanted to give certain characters who, if you lived through that period of time, that you felt that, that it traumatized you to a point where if you hadn't gone to therapy and you hadn't worked that stuff through, it affects your behavior, even if you don't remember the, the personal nature of it. You still remember the pain. You still remember the hurt. And I wanted each of the vampires, the sort of the top tier ones, to speak to that and to have that as their core. Um, as far as the ravenous sort of drone ones, the 28 days later type ones, yeah, you know, they were lost in life. You know, they were so they sort of fell through the cracks early in life. And those are the type of people that were lost in a in a search of just survival, base survival. And now they've been given this this power of sorts. And what do you do with it? It's almost like when people hit the lottery and all they've known is poverty. They spend, they lose $10 million in six mm -hmm. months because they really don't have the perspective that comes with, they don't have all the other stuff and a relationship with money to be able to deal with it wisely. And I wanted to do the same thing with those vampires. Of They've been given power, but what do you do with it when you've never had power? And no one's taught you what to do with it. Um, you sort of go mad. Um, and that's where those guys kind of fit in on the yeah. Yeah, and, and you've yeah you've said that you know vampires they're vampires who want to make humans pay for their transgressions and there's vampires who want to work with humans you know I mean, it's the yin and the yeah. yang the dichotomy that we talk about constantly, um, but you you know you talked about and I was going to bring this up that you you know you talked about ghosts and zombies they can't tell the history but mm -hmm. vampires can like you said would you find it more challenging to write a zombie or a ghost story or do you think it would be easier? I'm writing a uh, both right now and um, oh okay. And the certainly for graphic novels, the ghost story is a little bit harder um, for me because creating that element of surprise and horror is hard. Yeah. The story itself isn't hard, but the pacing that's needed in order to keep it interesting and to keep it, um, you know, that shining thing where the spectacle comes into it. Um, how do you do it and still make it feel attached to the main story, but still big enough that keeps the reader's attention? Um, ghost stories are hard. Zombies aren't that hard because zombies are like Terminators. They can't be reasoned with. Um, yeah. They just come forward. If you got enough of them, there's not a whole lot you can do other than shoot them in the head. So the brilliance, I think, of George Romero is, yes, you know, uh, Dawn of the Dead being about capitalism run amok yeah. and that money isn't the cure to all of your problems. And Night of the Living Dead being about the social issues of the 70s, race and such, that yeah. um, there was something under the story to go with the horror that gave it some semblance of purpose beyond just the headline of the, what you were dealing with. So... You know, I try to do that with Philadelphia. I try to give you a good dose of genre and horror, but I also try to create um, parallels to the world that we live in today and not, again, make it so medicine-y 
that you feel like, oh, God, I want to be preached to this month. I can't wait until Wednesday yeah. so that this guy is going to tell me about how bad the world is. Um, I try to give you an equal dose of hope, you know, along with um, perspective and history and all that other stuff. Yeah, and Jason, uh, Jason Sean Alexander does an amazing job uh, uh, doing now, that. Now i got to agree with you. And, uh, you know, Jason yeah. and I wrestle every single day. Uh, we're, I'm married to Jason. Um, yeah. every time I think I want a divorce. Yeah. Every time I think I want a divorce, I keep coming back home. Um, you know, there are times when he's a great husband and there's times when, you know, I want to make a dateline episode and, um, figure out a way to, to off him. But yeah, like I maybe love he's him. walking your dog and he's walking his dog and he's late for a podcast. Oh, I, I know. <laughs> Always. So so yeah so yeah th- there's this thing that happens with Jason and I but on a serious note I love Jason Sean Alexander when when we became friends uh, and I went to his home he has a a bunch of creepy artwork all over his walls and I was like the book I want to do is just like that art like his ability to capture emotion and pain and sorrow yeah it was like this. Together we could do a thing, and I just had to sell them on. It, you know, it reminds me a lot of like a. I remember reading like Grant Morrison's Arkham Asylum book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that real. Uh, yeah, photorealistic. Like yeah, yeah, photorealistic, but with you know a, a bit of like just that style that hits. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 really amazing. Uh, and I've got two more questions about vampires, and if we don't get into Philadelphia all the way today. I feel like Thomas Jefferson being at Woodstock deserves to be brought up down the road. Even if we hey, don't get man. that. TJ and the USA's a hell of yeah. a group. They never got so, the credit they deserve. So if we don't get to that today, I, I would love to have you back on if you would want to be back on. Of course I want to be. Um, but, but just real quick, we'll talk about, uh, you know, something that you, something else you said was you wanted to add trauma to the vampire to change what the vampire archetype is. Mm-hmm. Where did you get that idea? Was it a means to an end? Did you just sort of no. make it up or, or did you labor mentally over that? What happens with me in storytelling is um, the first half of my career, um, w- when you do sitcoms, you're going to make one every Wednesday, whether it well once a week, you're going to make one. Good, bad, or someplace in between, you're going to make a show. Yeah. And I learned that rhythm, that pace that, you know, you tell a story, you send the story out into the world. And then somewhere along the way, I started working with different type of different types of storytellers who um, push me further and harder to go deeper with stories um, yeah. to tell a different type of story. I've. Again, going back to Cole Shack and Salem's Lot and a lot of the other things that influenced me, I've had this idea in my head since childhood. And I tried it in a lot of different ways, and I tried to add history to it, and I tried to add different things to it. But until I was able to find the human stuff, something felt missing. So um, I can tell you exactly when it happened. I was, I think it was the ninth time I saw Hamilton. Uh, on Broadway and the King came out and the King was making a joke about John Adams. And I remember thinking to myself, what if John Adams was here in the audience right now, if he was a vampire and he heard them making fun of him because all the other founding fathers that are in it to lesser or greater degrees are sort of 
held hot, you know, the songs to Washington and yeah. Jefferson comes and does his thing. And it's like, everybody's doing a thing. And then when the King's like, John Adams, good luck. And man, you know, if I was John, I'd be pretty pissed. And, you know, when I, I started to do some research on Adams and he was sort of, you know, again, it's sort of this benign figure in a way that um, was there, but no one really looked to as being the guy. And if you felt insignificant, which at times in my life I felt, and I understood that emotion, um, I was like, okay, now I'm getting somewhere. I had the thing with the father and the son thing, but I didn't feel like I had an antagonist. I didn't want Dracula. I didn't want the big bad to show up and just be a big bad or Darth Vader to just descend on the thing and the whole city goes to hell. I wanted it to be a thing to where, from his point of view, he's doing the right thing. From his point of view, I'm, cha I'm making America great again. And I was there at the beginning. So I have a, you know, a very specific idea of what we yeah. wanted to do. And they never treated me in the way that I think, you know, time hasn't treated me in the way that I feel like I deserve to be treated. So uh, once that alchemy kind of got added to the stuff that was already working, that's when I started to figure out what this was. Yeah, and uh, going back to Jupiter and talking about him, uh, he was Jupiter Evans is a real person, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. He bought Jefferson's books for him when he was in college, and I know they had uh, one event where I don't, I think it's something about he he was supposed to take, you know, one of the other slaves there was going to take a horse out, and he didn't give him the horse, and Jefferson ended up, uh, you know, punished him for that. But one thing I thought was really interesting that I I don't know uh, if it's been touched on the book. I've read the book, and if it was touched on, I forgot. I thought it was really cool that Jupiter Evans, like the real character, I was on the Monticello, is it Monticello? Is that how you mm -hmm. say it? With a, uh, the Monticello app. They have an app where it just talks about the slaves and the slave quarters. And he was actually a mason, uh, mm -hmm. learned masonry, and he actually built the marble pillars outside of Monticello. And I thought that was such an uh, interesting thing. Would you ever incorporate something like that into the book? Yeah, I mean, I think anytime, as long as it fit, as long as there was something else that it symbolized, you know, and in that it does obviously symbolize um, who he was. But I'm always looking for, you know, that Sally Hemings, Jupiter, or Thomas Jefferson story. Yeah. Always felt like a soap opera to me. Always felt like there was something there that had a narrative drive to it. So incorporating, you know, facts like that and stuff like that um, is certainly possible. Um, I try to balance it because too much history becomes certainly of a certain period. There's a yeah. sameness to it. Yeah. Um, sort of arduous. I yeah, guess. it's like I try not to stay too much in that period or the Civil War because it's kind of obvious and easy. Um, yeah. I'd like to go to other periods. That's why Thomas Jefferson was at Woodstock because um, I want to talk more about the 70s. I want to talk about the 80s. I want to talk about like different periods because Reconstruction um, – I wrote a movie that uh, hopefully we'll shoot later this year, or maybe next year, that uh, deals with that period after Reconstruction, the early 1900s. And so, uh, you know, just being able to deal with different periods of time. But to your question, yeah, is the answer. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, talking about post reconstruction, you know, one author that I guess growing up or even in school that that you know we talked about was uh, William Faulkner. I've always loved mm-hmm. his work. Uh, I, I went and visited Old Miss and his mansion, and I always found like you know the Sound and the Fury and, and As I Lay Dying and stuff uh, interesting. You know, period pieces that he that he's done. Uh, but but moving on back to vampires, I'm, I'm getting off topic. Uh, just talk. We could talk about oh, all, that all day. Yeah. 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 Um, but, you know, one of the best pieces of vampire lore I've ever heard came from you. Uh, vampires defy God by their mere existence, going against God's design of life and a permanent earthly death. When you try to bring back a vampire, you have to go to hell. But if you want to bring back a vampire back to a human, you have to go the other way. Man, how did you come up with that concept, man? Um, I'm intrigued by the idea of religion in my life. Um, it's weird because... There's this weird, um, uh, how can I put it? There's this weird intersection that religion and movies sort of work the same way with me and mythology. And Sandman, I thought, I, I don't give Neil Gaiman enough credit. Um, Sandman also opened some doors for me as well. And that there are people who say at times that Philadelphia feels like a vertigo book. And that's purposeful yeah. because the vertigo world and... Um, you know, whether it was uh, Swamp Thing going to hell to get Abby's soul back or in Neil Gaiman's world with, um, you know, the dream uh, dream yeah, and yeah, all yeah. of the other folks that are around him. Um, I'd never seen that done with um, an urban world, uh, so yeah. to speak. You know, it always had a very specific world that it was dealing with. So I kind of put vampires in a mythological place. Um sort of like uh, with Pan and all of Hades and all of that. I, I look at them as being monsters in general, you know, being metaphorical of um, the darker elements of us as people and yeah. as human beings. So why wouldn't vampires have that, you know, distinction attached to them? I just wanted one, i.e. Seesaw, uh, to yeah. sort of be the hope that you can overcome the darkness within you if you can tap in to that thing. So I hope I answered the question. But yeah. yeah, yeah, you sure did. Uh, and and I, if we get to it, we'll talk more about uh, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing run later. Uh, is there anything you had, Robert? I've got some rapid-fire comic questions we can get to later. Yeah, yeah I got a few in there. Um, uh, Go ahead. The, the, you know, the... I don't want to... I'm tongue-twisted here. I mean, the level at which we're talking about these subjects, I, I am just thrilled about. So thank you so much for, I mean, it's just, you know, it's the, the genre. I think it gets such a bad rap sometimes because of, mm-hmm. it is because of the monsters and that's what sells to people. It's kind of what gets them in the door, you know, it mm-hmm. turns on their computer, whatever it is. That's what's in the trailer. That's what's in the trailer. The trailer is the horror. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. the story itself is you get a little bit of the story, but you never get it to the place of uh, what right, we're talking right. about. Right. So, I mean, I I have Bradley has his uh, George A. Romero. I've got mine with Simon Pegg and I, I love okay. Shaun of the Dead. And and one of the things that and I think it's this, the story behind that one that that's more than just the zombie story that I am attracted to so much. But here I'm going to bring our conversation actually down quite a bit because <laughs> not not a, not to a bad place. But this is something that uh, friends of mine and coworkers we we always seem to eventually get to a point where we have to ask somebody the zombie apocalypse question. 
And and we have mm-hmm. to say, and I'm glad you're working on some zombie things right now, because typically you have to think about, okay, so you have five minutes to grab one thing in your house. You can't go back. And now the zombie apocalypse has happened. And this is what's going to defend you and save you. Is there anything in your house that you can lay your hands on in five minutes that you can take to, well, it's, it's not that there, if there is anything, but what would it be? We usually say it's within our uh, work setting that where the zombies are at the doors, we have to grab something. What are we going to use to defend ourselves? Yeah, I mean, um, um, that's a great question. Um, one that I've actually asked myself. <laughs> we all um, do, man. We like that in, in weird types of yep. ways. Certainly when I was watching The Walking Dead in the early you know, not so much with the the Romero movies didn't feel as personal. You know, they were where they were, you know, in Pittsburgh, wherever they were. But The Walking Dead kind of forced that question. And I always felt like, um, I forget the character's name. I think I purposely forgot the character's name. But the one that had the hammer. Um, I always thought a hammer was a great weapon because it doesn't run out of bullets. And mm-hmm. you can hit them in the head. And as long as you have enough energy, and I think I, the adrenaline would be running for at least a good seven minutes for me after that, they're going to eat me. For, they're going to have the buffet of a lifetime. But um, <laughs> for seven minutes, if I can make it to my car, you know, or I get on the side of the road, I'm just going to be like, it's going to be like whack-a-mole. Yep. So I'm going to say <laughs> I have I love it, man. that would be the weapon that I would have, you know. So there you go. And then if I'm tired and I'm with someone, then they could take over for the hammering as well. If they're strong enough, you know, hopefully they don't hit them in the neck or the shoulder and then they get bitten. But See, yeah, you're you're thinking cool. like a practical man of your age, because this this is what yeah. I think, too, because we have I work in uh, physical therapy. We have all kinds of weighted um, devices and everybody wants to say they want to grab the six pound bar because that's going to be a big yeah, heavy yeah. bar that can clunk everything. I look at that and I'm like, man, I have swung that six pound bar enough. Yes. I'm grabbing the two pound bar because <laughs> I'm not yeah. going to do that. Yeah. And with me, um, I actually am a javelin thrower and a javelin coach. And I think, well, I'll just go down and get Uh-oh. my javelin. But then again, it's aluminum. It can get broken easily. I have a good throwing hatchet. And you got to go get no, it. No, I know. I got five it's minutes. Like- I can do it. Five <laughs> minutes, man. All right. Because I'm just saying it, it feels like a javelin feels like a musket. Where once you oh, yeah, fire, afterwards. you got to stop yeah, and yeah, reload, yeah, yeah. Completely. and you got to do because javelin, you got to take it out of the. It's over yes. there, and you got to get exactly. it. And, you know, exactly. It was yeah. It was the thought of all right. So like, if I do hand, if I do close, you know, encounter spear work, and uh, but anyway, no, I landed on the hatchet because I have a hatchet that has a hammer attachment. Hatchet, yeah. Hatchet's not yep. bad. I think hatchet, a nice big Phillips head screwdriver. <laughs> I think. Um, <laughs> Those type of weapons, you know, the screwdriver is lighter mm-hmm. and it's sort of like a it's sort of like a knife, but it's got a point that's enough that you could drive right. it through their skulls from a myriad of entry points. So yeah, so, that's what. And, I'm, and there is a commercial somewhere on Facebook about someone who has created the ultimate. I don't know what you want to call it. The ultimate staff that has mm-hmm. a diamond head point to it where it can break stone. Um, it has attachments mm. for a knife. It has all these things, mm. you know, and I don't know if Bradley you saw me or post about that. It was probably within the last year. And I'm looking at that. And I'm like, man, that is the ultimate zombie tool. 
It is the ultimate. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it looks like I mean, it's indestructible to a certain extent. It'll last through some fights. But uh, anyway. You you got to hope that you you can plan because you gave me five minutes. So I got to order that. I got to <laughs> no, wait for no, Amazon to bring it. it and now. the zombies are outside. If I got to get it now, like the Delta variant, that there's a zombie variant that's coming. <laughs> yeah. I got to know. I got to know that there's a thing that's about Absolutely. to happen. Like how you go get toilet paper. Like when COVID started, everybody rushed out to get toilet paper. Yeah, I have yeah. to rush out and get zombie weapons, you know, for or, everybody. Or, like or you just stock up now, you know? Yeah, well, yes, this is true. I, I, I do this have a true. friend who, who who is very mentally stable, but after mm-hmm. these questions, and he had studied some martial arts, he decided he was going to get a katana. <laughs> He'll, he'll be eating. He's he's okay. Because those weapons look they're like nunchucks when I was a kid with Bruce oh, yeah. Lee where I beat myself oh, up yeah. where I thought, like, Bruce made it look mm-hmm. perfect. For me, he doesn't know that, like, when you're making movies, you can stop and you say cut and you do it again and again. And he thinks Bruce just did that like that. So <laughs> katanas, nunchucks, Stars, any of those things. I don't want any of that. Give me a I'm, hammer. I'm, I'm with you there hammer. too. I'm, I'm going to take my great grandfather's axe that has a hammer side on it, and uh, that's, that's going to make its way for me. Bradley, that's really the only other question I had. There were some other things I was going to bring up, but if you want to jump back into some more yeah. questions you got, go for yeah, it. Yeah, we'll. Man, and Rodney, let's be honest. You're six eight. Well, six seven now. Uh, you said you shrank an inch, but you're I think six I have. seven. Yeah. The, the only thing between you and those zombies is air and opportunity, my friend. You. But they have better, they don't have, like, they're not going to get tired. Yeah. They're not going to get tired because they're cannibals (laughs) and that, which still doesn't actually make sense to me. But because you would think if they still operate off of the human stuff, even with the virus, at some point they're going to get tired. But that's not important. The thing is, since they don't get tired, and I do, you know, I have. there have been times when I'm trying to, I want something to drink and I'm trying to figure out, telekinesis or something. <laughs> I was going to ask you that question. Go ahead. Get me to get it for me so that I don't have to walk. I, like I've spent more time. I could have gotten it and been back <laughs> in the time that I've spent trying to figure out how to get it in the laziest way possible. So I don't think all of this is great. Um, but at this stage, at this age or whatever, there's a point after about a week and a half, I'm just going to say goodbye to everybody. Oh, yeah. Say, oh, look, yeah. y'all, I tried. I tried my hatchet. I ordered the thing that you suggested <laughs> that I ordered, and I had all of the stuff. And it's like, you know what? It's, I just let it go. Just let it go. Y'all be safe. Good luck. You be like the guy in <laughs> the uh, by the tree when they all drive away from the hill in Atlanta in uh, the first yeah, season. Yes. You're just like, just yes. leave me here. Yes. I'll see you. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. You know, Yes. Yes, I don't have any of the others. I'm certainly not Rick Grimes. I'm not Glenn. (laughs) I'm not any of them. You know, I'm just at the point. I'm, you know, I'm closer to Herschel. You know, where Herschel is just like, hey man, hey, you know, love you all. Go ahead. When he nodded, when the governor cut his head off. Bradley, I'm going to say one more, one more question. Just dawned on me because I think the the character you were talking about that had the big hammer, he played. Um, a character in The Wire, and I'm wondering with your Maryland he background, Cuddy. Yes, he was the boxing he was guy. Yeah, Cuddy in The Wire. Yeah, Cuddy was the boxing yep. guy, and he went oh, to and Avon, big and guy he told him he couldn't do yep. it anymore. And um, and Avon Wood Harris, who's in the show that I'm doing okay. right now. Um, oh, cool. And uh, yeah, so 
you know, but but I forget his name because I hated him as a mm-hmm. character because he was, and I understood at, in the writers' room somebody had a great idea when they said, "Hey, what if I know he's so big and everything, but what if we make him afraid?" And I'm saying he wasn't that in the comic book, you no. know, in the comic book he was like Thor, he was. you know, but with a claw hammer, yeah. and now he can't shoot. He's terrified. A kid <laughs> bites him. And, you know, of all of the things, he's going to stay back and babysit while everybody's trying to uh, rescue everybody else. Uh, what's her name? Goes back to help right. Rick while he's babysitting. And I'm not saying she had to babysit. I'm no. not saying yeah. that. I'm just saying that they could have figured out something to where both of them went and they wrapped up the baby or something. I don't know. But the fact that every time courage was required, he sort of went in the other yeah. direction. I was like, that yeah, yeah. In the comic, he's the guy who, <clears throat> and, you know, takes on hundreds within that cafeteria. Yeah. And, and yes. he com- comes out alive. Yes. <laughs> yes. And here he's like, oh, I don't know if I can shoot him. <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> you know, uh, again, he you don't have to make him Shaft or, um, you know, uh, Truck Turner or some black exploitation character. But at a certain point, you know, his sister, I think, was tougher than oh, him. Oh, completely. And. I just want him to be at least competent. Yeah. I wanted, that's it's, all I want. Yeah. I mean, you, you probably uh, not struggle with this, but you address this as a professional writer in that some of the characters, you know, how many heroes can you have on a show? True. You know, yes. and, it, yes. and it's a shame yes. that it's yes. those guys. And, and there yes. were a couple people. I, I listened to one of the, the walking dead podcasts and I won't say what they say. Cause we keep our podcast clean. But it was blankety blank blank blank, not T Dog blank. And oh yeah, I hate it. Oh T Dog, I had a personal. If T Dog came to my house right now, he needed a cup of water. I'd stab him with that thing that you told me <laughs> that I should buy. T Dog, not the Why? not the real person. Why do you hate T Dog so much? I hated T T Dog. Had T Dog made the worst decisions in the history they of television. Um, he made and he always seemed when he dropped the keys. You know, when he dropped the keys, when he decided to drive off, yeah. you know, no, we just got to leave. And they're like, no, 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 he's right over there. No, we got to go. Uh, and then he got an infection. And uh, they, what's wrong with you, T-Dog? Uh, I don't know. I, I feel sick, <laughs> but I'm going to be okay. Uh, every decision, everything that T-Dog did. And again, this actor may be the greatest. He may be the next Othello. They may do a modern-day Othello with that actor. Um, I'm not even going to look up his name, and I have, a com- I have computers all around me right now. I'm not going to look up his name because I'm going to get angry. Um, <laughs> he made every worst decision you know, between him and the one with the yeah. hammer. And it's funny that I don't remember the black actor's name, so I apologize to everyone. But I think it's not because of their ethnicity. It's because of the decisions that they made on yeah. the show, which I will credit again to the actors. They made horrible decisions. To the actors, really? Not the writers? And, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the the writers made those decisions. But the actors decided, okay, I'm going to do it. I deal with actors every day when they tell me, I'm not doing that. You know, they say, really? can we at least do this? And we find a middle wow. ground where there's something in between where, believe me, I have conversations wow. with actors every single day about something hey do you think you know we could do this instead of that or maybe we could split the difference somewhere down t-dog never asked the question one his name is t-dog okay (laughs) 
to have a nickname in a zombie apocalypse in and of itself to me was inappropriate because if his name was Theodore, Doug, or something, you know, Theo or something, T-Dog. They had a conversation because he was introduced as yeah. T-Dog. You know, his name is Teddy, but we call him T-Dog, and there's a little story with it where he had a dog, and it was something. But it felt like he's the black guy. We're in Atlanta. He's a T-Dog. <laughs> I think you're right. And it just, it, it bothered yeah. me. Oh, my God, it bothered me. You know, I love that pilot, Days Gone By, and I love the first two, three uh, episodes. And Frank, great job, season one, yeah. Frank. T-Dog, and Constantine knows this because we have Walking Dead conversations at our lunches sometimes. <laughs> if if I could have just reached into television and grabbed T-Dog and just hit him in the throat and he fell and he died and somebody said, what happened? And by the time he figured it out, the zombies were eating him. That would have been a fine way to end T-Dog's existence <laughs> on the show. But no. And they try to make it up in the end where T-Dog gets bit. That right, was my favorite he saves episode Carol or something like that, right? Yes, but, 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 but he got bitten twice yeah. because I thought, okay, this could be one of those things where they bite him in the arm and they have to cut his arm off and then he's walking around with like this arm, but they bit him twice. So then I knew he yeah. was dead. And if they could have bit him three or four more times to guarantee that he was dying, <laughs> then I would have given it an Emmy, whatever my version of an Emmy here in my home that I could have given him a gift would have been fantastic because... Uh, T-Dog and me never saw eye to eye. And I would be invested. I would be invested until T-Dog came on. And I'd be, okay, wait, what dumb thing is he going to do this week? What is he about to this do? Is, what is he about to do? Uh, Bradley talks about comedy gold in Kolshak. I mean, this is podcast gold right here. Or or if it was, oh, if it was Shaun man. of the Dead, hey, it, would be, it would be a slice of fried gold. But that's meant yeah. to be. Like, you know, Return of Living Dead, Shaun of the Dead, they're purposely adding in... You know, yeah. uh, zombie world, they're adding humor right. to it. T-Dog wasn't meant to no, be he funny. Wasn't. He wasn't trying. <laughs> he wasn't trying. And I rooted for Michael Rooker when they were Shut on the up. roof that Michael, he could have gotten out and he could have gotten to T-Dog and pushed him off the roof or something and all the zombies would have eaten him. But yes, I would, you can ask my kids and they're like, Daddy, is T-Dog? Yeah, let me ask. Yes, yes, true. Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Is there a way I could like DVR The Walking Dead and just go through the T Dog uh, scenes and anti T Dog? When people thing? see this, Michelle they'll remake it take. for you. Thank you, <laughs> Michelle. And I could take because she didn't talk for like a season and a half. She just kind of made sounds and made an expression. Then later she became a thing. But that T Dog man, he he, ooh man, incredible. Yeah. So we took we talked about some things that are hard consequential decisions like what your your zombie apocalypse weapon is now i'm gonna put you on the spot i would but take the head of t-dog and use it on my fist and punch zombies friendly every That's... time they came in the room that would be my weapon now I'd switch up from the claw hammer to the skull of t-dog and just punch different bradley you're good with uh, oh the little photography changes i need you to find t-dog's head we're putting it on rodney mm-hmm. still that we got from the video and he's going to be punching zombies. Just like that. <laughs> just, just like that. With a yeah. look on my face. I would have to look at the other character should have had where he was fighting zombies. Where Just like that. And he never had that look. He had oh, he had that look. But I would have had oh, the man. other look. And a little um, bubble that says, this is so, for you, Rooker. 
Yeah. So so moving on to something less con- less consequential, but I think it's uh it's going to be put you on the spot here, Rodney. Um, yeah. You followed creators rather than brands like Marvel or DC. Uh, you've said that whenever talking about reading comics. Uh, so we're, we're going to play a little game here. I'm going to give you a comic creator or artist along with it, two of their prominent works, one from DC and one from Marvel, right. and you have to pick one. And uh, that some, most of these you've said in in uh, you've talked about these uh, these creators, artists, or writers in an interview. So let's start. Jim Starlin, Infinity War, or Death in the Family? Infinity War. Okay. Frank Miller. Daredevil actually, the... actually, Warlock over all of them. His uh-huh. Captain Marvel Warlock run over both of them. But continue. Yeah, yeah. And if you got one you like better, throw it in there. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Jack Kirby, Fantastic Four or The Fourth World? Fantastic Four. Okay. Okay. Frank Miller, Daredevil or The Dark Knight Returns? That's a hard one. I'm going to say Daredevil only because it lasted longer. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was prime. There's a there's a there's a page where Bullseye is laying in bed uh, in a hospital bed, and it's just his yeah, eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And he's mm-hmm. talking about that he's going to put himself back together, and he's going to get Daredevil, and then the death of Elektra and all of that. It's like that was prime stuff. And when Kingpin was driving him crazy, and can't get any better than that. Okay, uh, Mike Grell, this is a little bit of a deep cut. Thing in the Iceman or Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunters? Legion of Superheroes. The, from the Adventure mean? Comics uh, to okay. Superboy and the Legion of uh, Superheroes. Okay, Neil Adams, X-Men or Batman? Batman. Okay, Okay. Batman or Green Lantern for Neil Adams? Neil, uh, Green, uh, Green Lantern only because um, I remember it so distinctly um, – Actually, just sent all of those to BCGC like a week ago. Um, oh, wow! I remember um, those Green Lantern books were the ones that I stole when I was like seven. Um, you know, and again, I've asked for forgiveness from the universe, and the universe has forgiven me. That's why they mm-hmm. sent them to me to BCGC. Um, so yes, Green Lantern. Okay, uh, John Byrne, uh, Dark Phoenix, X Men arc, or Superman, Man of Steel. X Men. Okay. Okay. Um, now we'll get into a little bit of a swamp thing because I just started. You know the good thing about the, all the apps nowadays. I have the Marvel app. I have the DC app. You can read anything you want now. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know Alan Moore's you know run is just so uh, it's fun. You know, it, it, and you've talked about you love the aspect this is of the original beauty. John Totalbin Swamp Thing art that I just had. Oh man! And that's... I have two pages that I just bought of original art from Down Amongst the Dead Men. Um, from Swamp Thing, and two pages from issue 28 and 29, but continue. Oh, man, that's so awesome. What You know, I was just going to say, you've talked about the Beauty and the Beast aspect of it and the relationship, um, and you've also talked about your love of the afterworld in, in the Swamp Thing that Alan Moore creates, and you wanted to create your own afterlife, and we've talked a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've talked about, you know, Sandman, uh, Matheson's What what Dreams May Come. Um, is there anything, any other source material besides those that you've pulled from uh, that to, to create your afterlife? Or Dante's Inferno, uh, yeah. Dante's Inferno, the Bible. Um, yeah. You know, any of religious texts that sort of deal with that type of stuff. Um, again, Sandman. Uh, it's a mishmash of mythology. You know, anytime. <laughs> um, just put them all in there together to make a stew. Um, like I said, Neil Gaiman sort of kind of gave me permission 
to because he pulled from everything um, that I just started pulling from everything because I thought that there were rules. And then after a while, you realize there are no rules. It's just if it works. And sometimes it does. Yeah. And uh, so what was it that drawn that drew you to Alan Moore? Did you find it as far as like on a on a comic shelf, like in the store or did you get it recommended to you? Found it. But it was one of those things, and, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to heaven, um, but wherever I go, if there's somebody that has kind of been at the helm of this thing, that universe thing we were talking about, I'm going to ask them why there were certain things that entered my life that had such a profound effect on me. Alan Moore was one of those things. Um, Miracle Man and Swamp Thing uh, sort of walked hand in hand for me. And that first book, I, I remember reading the um, I forget the the anatomy lesson, and that just grabbed me immediately. And then it kept going, and Arcane and Abby and stealing the soul and all of the stuff. It just yeah. was everything that I wanted it to be. And yeah, I found it in the store. I think I found it at Jeppy's Comic World and the Inner Harbor. There was a time when I used to go to Steve Jeppy's house. Um, Steve Jeppy, the distributor from um, Previews uh, that owns the uh, distribution company that distributes all of our comic books. He used to have a thing in his basement where he would sell comic books out of his basement. And then it was a comic shop that he had in the Inner Harbor in Baltimore. And we would drive up on um, weekends. And I remember getting, you know, it, it was during a period where you had Starlin was doing Warlock or the beginning Ron Lim was doing um, Silver Surfer that had Warlock in it. It was like the beginning of yeah, what was going to become yeah. the Infinity Gauntlet. You had uh, Claremont and Byrne on the X-Men. You had like every everything was great, you know, and I remember like 30 bucks could get you a stack of comic books that would last <laughs> me quite some time. Um, I miss those days. But um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, but but that's a cool thing now. I think with our generation um, and the, and people growing up, you can spend seven bucks a month and you can have unlimited comics. It's not the same to me, man, as getting like like I got this, you know, last month I got this, and and you've got another one coming out Wednesday, right? So yeah, man, um, uh, um, number fifteen. I just read it again. I always have this anxiety um, <laughs> right before Philadelphia week because Jason always. The night before, it's like, oh, it's Philadelphia week, and I just want to block them um, out of my phone because <laughs> uh, I don't need a reminder. Because, you know, that's when Twitter hits me. You know, I wake up and because I turn my phone off at night because uh, it makes sounds and I want to, and I'm a light sleeper and it bothers me. So um, I used to have a phone addiction. Uh, when I was in the hospital during that period when I was sick, all I had was the phone, and that's when yeah. I started to get on social media and I started to do certain things, but it became like an addiction to the point where it was like, okay, I need to figure out a way how to balance this whole phone thing. And Twitter, like I said, we have a, we've made peace now. But <laughs> when it's Philadelphia week, that's when people tag me and tell me what they think and whatever. And I always get nervous because every issue of Philadelphia goes in a different direction than you think it is. Um, and I purposely sit here and say, I know you think that's going to happen, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, um, so I worry that, you know, disappointing yeah. folks. Uh, and yeah, this Wednesday. 
Yeah, and I'm, 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 I have a weird ske- work schedule, so I'll be off Wednesday. I'll be at the comic shop when they open to go get it. God bless um, you. And, and you, know, uh, you know, talking about this, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, we're winding down here. I don't know. I, I'm, we'll talk about Philadelphia later, and if you want to come back, I would love to have you. Now, now Robert, to picture this, I'm envisioning this. I've got the uh, I've got the trades right here. Mm-hmm. I've read them. I've read both the trades because uh, I got in late. I'm gonna, I'm gonna send both these trades to one Mark to Woodsyak, and if we can, Rodney, if we can get you on, yes. and have a vampire. We had an interview, a yes. three hour interview with Mark to Woodsyak about mm-hmm. vampires. Part three about a vampire conversation. Have Rodney, have Mark, and I'd also love to have Rodney back on to talk to our friend Richard Haddam, who did Mothman Prophecies. Uh, he's working on DC Titans. And maybe we could workshop a Coal Shack episode if there's a 21st episode. I've got a lot of things. I would that, be happy to. But, um, you know, we're going to skip Philadelphia. We've talked a lot about it. Um, I want to talk about the spinoff. Uh, is it Elysium Gardens? I've seen Yeah, it there's down. Elysium Gardens, and there's another spinoff spinoff that should be in previews next week or so. With, Ooh, um, uh, is it, uh, is it Nita Hall's uh, Nightmare Blog? There you go. Um, yeah. That's a spinoff of In the Philadelphia World. That is... Um, yes. If I could get up, I would get you a picture and you would know exactly what it is. But yes. Yeah. So um, we, we just mention Elysium Gardens here in, in a little bit. I love that the the inter- and this may be more of a statement than it is a question, but I love like the interwoven true events with the police attacks mm-hmm. on the mosque in 1962, uh, coupled with like uh, Frederick Knight's passage in the Journal of Negro History that you quoted, and also uh, Ossie Davis's uh, eulogy for Malcolm X, mm-hmm. it, and it gives it this next level of realism meets surrealism. And, and you know, I know you try to walk that line. You've talked about it, you know, talking about the history of stuff. And and th- there's just a perfect way that you walk that line. Um, Thank you. So I, I just love that. And you've also talked about werewolves because it's like a werewolf story that you really haven't delved into. Well, it um, was history. One of a Jason wanted to draw werewolves. That's where it started. <laughs> and I wanted to tell the story of people of color that hadn't been slaves, that only knew one reality. And they were coming to America, uh, not the Eddie Murphy way, but they were coming (laughs) to America and they were sort of shocked and surprised that this is what happened during the period that they were kind of lost at sea and blah, blah, blah. They just sort of landed into a society that was still sort of dealing with the trauma of that period of time and they had to reconcile what they were going to do with that information because all they knew were kind of being uh conquerors you know they sort of were pirates to a lesser degree after um you know the beginning of their history and so what do we how do we reconcile this thing we've got this power we're werewolves and we can rip heads off and we can do this stuff yeah um but we also have this emotional connection to these people that really don't know what they came from and who they are and how do we find that? And then they find voices that speak to what's going on inside of them. They find the Malcolm X's. They find this militant movement that feels connected to them uh, in the way that they know the world to be. So yeah. they get caught up in movements. They get caught up in um, they get caught up in stuff that they are mostly connected to. They just don't know how to use their power yet. Um, Wow, I wonder if that means they will get to know that power. I yeah. wonder where they'll do that. Um, <laughs> and you know, there's a um, there's a there's a meeting of the minds at some point where they have to either make peace or war with the idea of what America is in the Western world. 
Yeah, and um, you know, the the ship was named Paradise Blue. Is that a reference to the uh, Dominic Morrissey book, or? Yes and no. I found about that after the fact. I just thought it was a really cool name yeah, um, yeah. for a nightclub. I felt like it would be a great name for a ship and a great name for a nightclub. And I was like, okay. And then people yeah. started asking me that question. So I said, yeah, I lied to them. But I'll tell you the <laughs> truth. Oh, man, I, I appreciate so it. Yeah. <laughs> And how, you know, I also love, like, you know, you've talked about House of Mystery, House of Secrets, Werewolf by Night, mm -hmm. uh, and even, like, uh, the werewolf film, The Howling, being your favorite, yep. sort of helping you build that world and build it out. Uh, so, I mean, it's just real fun. And also, I get black, like, Batman black and white, like, Neil Gaiman vibes from it, you know, because it's in black and white. Is that a, a, a sort of a... Jason wanted to do a black and white book. Um he had been bugging me about it for a while, and then he wanted to do werewolves too. And I, you know, this first arc where Christopher Minton is doing a great job uh, with the run right now, but Jason was, um, that was his desire. We were, one day we were kind of fanboying over the Frankenstein, the black and white Frankenstein book that uh, yeah. uh, Bernie oh, Wrightson had done. Mm -hmm. And it's like, man, we should do something like that. And this was sort of our and our Philadelphia way of dealing with history and time and my interest and his interest and in sort of blending the two like a good marriage would. Yeah. OK. I'm going to we're going to talk about Philadelphia television, the television show. Yes. Um, we're going to um, talk about it a little bit. Uh, you know, you, yes. you almost got the vampire idea as a movie in 95, you said, and you described it as Star Wars and Compton. Yes. Um, Star so, Wars with vampires and Compton yeah. and nobody bought it. I got really close. I had a conversation with Harvey Weinstein. My agent said, you're on a one-yard line. And he asked me, he said, I love it. It's a really great script. Is there any way you could um, have, like, more white people in it? Yes. And I was thinking, okay, you know, we're in Compton. Um, maybe the police could come. There could be more cops or school teachers. How could I get more white people? I racked my brain. And... I could never get what he wanted in there. So it never went anywhere. And I'm sort of glad it didn't yeah. only because I would never have had to evolve it to what it became. I like Philadelphia better than I like that book. That yeah. Movie, and that screenplay. Yeah. And, and, you know, I was going to talk about that. I didn't know it was Harvey Weinstein. You had mentioned before that it was a producer, but I had, yeah, it was Harvey more. Weinstein. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if he'll come after me now, but, uh, yeah, we had that conversation <laughs> and, um, yeah, that was the thing. How how different do you think it would have looked then? Like what? Huge. It Huge. wouldn't have been any of the. It wasn't. And it was more of an action movie with some stuff, a couple of scenes that yeah. felt like what Philadelphia is. Um, sort of in that Blade family, I guess. Yeah, it would have more of a urban Blade. Um, uh, yeah, but I like this better. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and so right now you've optioned this. You're optioned it as a show right now. Uh, and. So you have have you written any scripts for it? I've or written anything? the pilot. Uh, yeah. I wrote the pilot. We are uh, owe them the show Bible. Uh, I'm sorry, Tori. Um, I'm late because I'm doing this <laughs> the Lakers show. Um, yeah. But I'm writing uh, the show Bible, and I just went out to cast this week to cast uh, two characters, two actors that I've sent letters to who have the graphic novels and the scripts. And hopefully yeah. they'll say yes, and we can get this train moving. Yeah, that's so cool. Uh, and you know, moving on 
uh, closing it up, talking about projects you'd be interested in and future projects. Some things you've mentioned in passing, DC's Black Label book, Swamp Thing. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a Nightwing Swamp Thing crossover that you've written. I pitched you've it got, to DC. Yeah, I pitched it to you? DC. I haven't heard a word. The crickets are so loud that um, they feel they sound more like cicadas. Um, <laughs> I haven't heard anything from DC at this point. Hey, you know, I like you, the pitch, though. I like yeah. it. Which, you know, um, so we have a roundabout connection. Rich Haddam works for Titans. Okay. Um, and so, and he worked real good with Jeff Johns, who was over the whole DC Comics there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert, you think we could pull a few, few strings and see if we could get that pitch to Jeff Johns' desk? You think we could get it there? <laughs> well, here's the thing before you answer. I, I had a meeting with Jeff Johns. Oh, Lovely oh, okay. individual. And, um, yeah. It was funny because, you know, Jeff talked to me like, why am I talking to you? Um, and I even asked myself, well, I'm, I don't deserve to be in this man's office. This man's Jeff Johns. And, you know, who am I? Uh, this was a couple, few years ago. And um, I don't think I pitched that idea to him. But, um, but yeah, so I don't know if Jeff Johns is, you know, um, going to be open to that idea. Lord willing, he would be. Yeah. But, but yeah, well, there, there many... if I can, if I can just say something, Go ahead. yeah, no, they draw, DC makes a swamp thing show. It, it looks amazing. They cancel it before it airs, cut mm-hmm. the episodes. Why? Oh man. Okay, I that's don't a, know. That's uh, a can of worms right there, man. Yeah. I have it, no idea why it they was do such a good thing. show. Yeah. Man. I watched the first one. I liked the pilot and then I could never get the app to work because it was on that DC universe. DC app. universe. Yeah. And then, um, I didn't know when the other ones were going to drop, and then I saw that they had canceled it, and it was like, okay, this is a lot emotionally to invest in, knowing it's never going to come back again. <sighs> yeah. Constantine was the same thing, too. That, Dude, you I know, Constantine, Constantine went away. Yes. But I always thought Constantine should be an HBO show. And oh, yeah. One yeah. of those types of prestige shows that um, hopefully yeah. they'll do with HBO Max. Oh, like, I, would, yeah. I dig the Berlanti world, but I always felt like the Berlanti world was something I would have liked as a kid more so than... Yeah. Um. The you know the more adultier stuff, yeah. the, the darker stuff that I go Man, for that you can't do on network TV. Bring Matt Ryan back, have him as Constantine. I loved him as Constantine, man. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know we're gonna move on. We could talk Swamp Thing, Nightwing all day, and Rich Adam is actually writing stuff for the Nightwing and DC Titans. So maybe when he comes on, we can get him and Rodney to. God we bless can, him. Yeah, it out. I would love that. But future projects, wrapping this thing up. We've taken so much of your time. You've been so gracious. Uh, and I feel bad for making you sit here this long. No, it's a little girl that's going to be mad because today is ice cream day, and I promised oh her Do we need to I was going to take her to get ice cream, and she was texting me throughout this. Whenever you see my oh, eyes I'm go so there, sorry. Oh, it's her man. saying, Daddy, 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 there's still ice cream. It's only 8.46. If we get off okay. at 9 o'clock, I can get her ice cream, but my concern is that at some point I'm going to need somebody push me in a wheelchair, and I don't want them to like push me into the street, and I'm cognizant of that. So she's the one that could possibly push me in the street if she doesn't get her way. However we land before whatever the event is that puts me in a wheelchair, I'm trying to gauge it so that I'm in her good graces like towards the end because she will lead me in the street. Well, I work in. She hasn't you told me, but she's alluded. I work in spinal cord rehab. I would recommend a power chair. So then you would have the brakes and and the controls. I'm just saying. And then and then you yeah, have a place to also put like your zombie weapons. Professor X. 
Yes, Professor yes, I'm, prof- I'm Professor X at this <laughs> point. But they would like they do something to the chair. It's like these are evil children. <laughs> they would do something, you know, it's just and this other stuff I'm gonna need too. And they put all of the food up on the shelf in the refrigerator really high so I couldn't reach it. <laughs> and just things like that. So she's gonna get her. Bradley, before you say anything else, I, I got two quick questions. Go ahead. Um the first one is uh, season one, episode one of Boondocks. Um, what is mm-hmm. your middle name? The Garden Party? Uh, yeah. What is your middle name and yeah. how many letters are in it? Uh, my middle name is Powell, P-O-W-E-L-L, mm. so six. So you've got six, 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 just like Ronald Reagan. There Ronald you go. Wilson Reagan. You know. Did you write that line? <laughs> yes. Did you write that scene? I did not write that line. I, uh, I had something to do with all of with. <laughs> It was yeah. mutual throughout. I did write the song that Uncle Ruckus sings. Well, I wrote the idea of the song. I actually said it in the room one day. Um, it, that was all. It was a free for all. That episode was a free for all. And um, well, so, yeah. so the 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 other question is, um, because since you're working on a project about the Lakers, um, I, yep. I I grew up more of a Dr. J fan, and me too. Yeah, and and yeah, my. It, He's in it. He's awesome. in it. Awesome. And but but I still believe that the single greatest performance um, of anybody in forty two. Well, points. I'm just going the finals. I I think Magic going from point guard to point center. Yeah. Is that what you're yeah, talking about? Forty two points. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The finals game with yes, Kareem went yes. down, and yeah. he beat yes. the Sixers and um, broke my yes. heart. You know, I, he's another one along with T Dog. <laughs> That I would have wished I would have killed right on time because I was sure my Sixers right. were going to win because Kareem was right. gone. But lo and behold, Magic did it in just 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 unbelievable. And and you know yeah that's in, but but that's doesn't in it just I mean it being our age doesn't it just sometimes yes. like just almost I can almost get like a choke you know a little choked up feeling in my throat when I listen to Magic and Bird talk about how much they appreciate each other. Blows my mind. Yes, but, but I love it. Certainly where they started. Oh, certainly where yeah. they started to get to where they ended. Um, yes, definitely. Yeah. Awesome, Bradley. Yeah, which, I'm done. Which, yeah. No, <laughs> hey, and I'm sorry for taking over this interview, Robert. See, that's when we have to have him back, and this will be a, it'll be a Robert heavy interview that time. I'm happy. Um, <laughs> but but you know if, if we've got you know if you love uh, the L.A. Lakers, you love Magic and Bird talking. You will definitely love Showtime's L.A. Lakers, which has been shot and will premiere. Is it in spring 2022? Spring 2022. We are two-thirds of the way through the season. We just um, finished episode five or six um, the other night. And um, so, yeah. 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 So that's one of the future projects that I'm I'm, I'm excited about. But well, also, you get to see me act. That's the oh, part that's yeah. important too. That's cool. That's Which I'm, so I'm younger than you, so I missed all that. But my favorite players are like I loved Wilt Chamberlain. I don't know why I'm, I'm drawn to him, and I've loved watching all his old stuff. It was Conan the Destroyer? That was the mm-hmm. thing that pushed you. Yeah. Over. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and I love and I've loved Magic Johnson. So anytime I play a lot of 2K with one of my one of my friends, the friend I was telling you about, my black friend that lets me watch Boondocks occasionally with him if it's okay. Yes. God bless him. <laughs> God and bless and him. that's we, a good friend. I won't and, let Max Bornstein. Uh, he's uh, on the Showtime. I won't let him watch the Boondocks. He keeps asking me about it, and I said, <laughs> no. Even though you're a man in your 40s, you can't. 
watch. Yeah, you're not allowed. Um, like but we Lakers. play a lot of two K, and I, I'll get those old all time Lakers, and I'll either try to score a hundred. I'll lose all the time because I'll try to put a. I, I, I'm just magic. He's he's trying to. I'm trying to get him to a hundred. I don't know why. I'm not, Magic's gonna score a hundred points tonight, and I'll lose. He wasn't so always a big scorer. Uh, that game was yeah. such an aberration because he was more of an assist guy and the floor leader, floor general. But um, he did get 42 that night. I worried about Dr. J getting the title. We owe you one. And then uh, they won in 83, and I was happy. So yeah. there you go. So, uh, you know, moving on, we're, we're trying to wrap up here in a couple – in, like, the next 10 minutes. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, Zombie Love Studios. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, you've got your own imprint now, man. I know you you're not going to do the floppies. You're going to do trade paperbacks. Mm-hmm. Um, so so tell us about that. I know you wanted to go with the name Amazing Zombies that was taken. Of yeah, that was taken. Damn it! That's as angry as I can get at nine o'clock. Um, there are three books that uh, we will publish probably yeah. in the spring because it takes a long time to get rights to things. I've come to find. Uh, the flagship book is Blackula. I've gotten the rights from MGM. Um, and a Blackula book, and basically it's Blackula versus Dracula, because if you've seen the movie, Dracula was the one that turned him into Blackula. Um, there's a ghost story, Crownsville, that's set in the first black or one of the first black mental institutions in America. Based, now, based near you where you were, right? Based near where I grew up at and um, sort of The Shining in a mental hospital. Yeah. Uh, and Florence and Normandy, a story that I'm doing with the rapper Exhibit. Um, Entrepreneur, actor. He's there you go, because I used to say my thing was not the cardiologist exhibit, the, the <laughs> uh, rapper uh, exhibit. Um, and yeah. pretty proud of that and all different artists. and um, yeah. Um, really putting our best foot forward here. Yeah, and you know, you talk about that mental asylum you grew up near. Was there actual paranormal activity there? Did you ever go to it? Did you hear no, about it? I went. Yes, um, it was one of those places where you know I had an aunt who had a nervous breakdown, and she was there. And a lot of oh, people. Wow. My grandmother was a nurse there, and it was a relationship. When you come from a small town and you go to wherever, like the Naval Academy and hospitals were the places where people could get employment. And this was one of those places. And um, it was kind of like the boogeyman. You know, it was one of those places where if you didn't act right, we're going to send you to Crownsville. And it was always stories like uh, urban legend that they were doing experiments on the patients. And then this big story came out, this expose in our local newspaper about that place having having done some of those experiments. And, um, you know, you put my mind... You put that in my head, and I'm like, you know, what would that look like? And um, how could I make that horrifying? And how can I I always try to find something of myself and my experience that I feel is relatable to other people into the story? So, yeah, a lot of heartache, a lot of trauma. But I think that's what ghost stories are, because the spirits can't move on um, and they're stuck here. So they're angry. So they do spooky stuff. Yeah, and uh, so with the which is what I'll do after yeah. I kill T Dog. I'm gonna feel really guilty, <laughs> and I'm gonna be stuck here on this uh, immortal plane, plane of existence because yeah. I, I killed T Dog. That, act, that actor somewhere is just like his head is like, what is wrong? He why, is. Why, He's like, what did I do? I just did me? what they told me to do. Why is this? What did I do? And I'm like, if man, you dropped the keys. The first scene. You dropped the keys, and from that point on, it was hard for us. You would have had to save everybody. And, you know, 
Yeah. Um, I apologize. <laughs> so I just no, had the thing. I'm struggling to get over this thing. You've conjured up something in me. It's okay. You know, uh, but we, we yeah. all we all have things we got to call me our dog from now on. And I'll never come back. I'll never come back. After. Yeah, you want you could get Darren McGavin to come back as a ghost and I wouldn't come on. So I'm just saying, if you call me our dog, I would be really oh, okay. angry. just letting you know. Um, OK, I'm, with Image Comics, you're doing the Nightmare Blog, you know, Philadelphia, uh, Nina Hall's Nightmare Blog, uh, which is branching off from Philadelphia. You're doing a sci-fi story that you and Jason are doing. I don't know if it's been named. Can you name drop that or no? Uh, Monarch, uh, we have uh, – I'm looking at my board, so when I look off. Uh, from Image, yeah. we're doing Philadelphia, Nita, Monarch, and Elysium Gardens. Uh, yeah, those yeah. are the four stories we're going to tell for Image. I'm doing Army of Darkness and James yes. Bond. Uh, for dynamite. Oh, oh James uh, Bond, you could you you I I hadn't heard you announce that yet. I so know they're supposed to do it last week, so I'll do it now. Oh um, my goodness, that's so, so cool. And I'm doing uh, a Mandalorian book uh, for what? Marvel, and I'm oh, doing man. a one shot IG88 book that's attached to uh, the bounty hunter thing that's going on right now. Man, the my, bounty hunter event. Yeah, yeah, Star Wars. Um, I do a story. I do a very. I, I do one of my favorite stories that I just finished and turned in a couple of weeks ago for then and Quinn Credible, volume yeah, three. Uh, yeah. I'm in the middle of doing that along with those other three zombie love books, and I'm negotiating three or four more that I can't say, um, in a novel, and gosh, man, two more TV shows and a couple of books. Yeah, yeah, in th- yeah, anthology series, uh, things that make white people uncomfortable. There you go. That. Yeah, that's over there. Yeah. And Tiger Woods. Yes, and, the Tiger Woods uh, the thing. Tiger yeah. Woods miniseries, and um, there's and Philadelphia. You know, we're still waiting on there too. Man, and, uh, you know, you know, Rodney, Showtime. you have, you have so many irons in the fire. I got kids, man. I got kids, you got- <laughs> and they keep wanting to eat. They keep bothering me. They keep growing. They want- yeah. And again, I don't want to be left in the street. And my kids are problematic, all of them. The little, the bigger, the old of them, they're problematic children. And I have a fear uh, deeply that they won't care for me as life goes forward. And I know I'm not going to make it too, too much longer because um, it's only but so much a body and the spirit can take. So I'm trying my best to make amends to yeah. my daughter. I'm coming, Brittany. And she's going to get her ice cream, and she's going to be happy, and then tomorrow will be something else, and I'll be back at it again. So, so. we're rolling. Yeah, we're rolling the music now, and uh, man, there's so many irons in the fire. I would love to have you back. You with uh, you know, as long as you don't yet. call me our dog, I'll come back again and again. If you ever, if you ever will, like, you know what this Rodney thing isn't working, and we don't want him to come back, but we don't know a way to tell him that we don't want him to come back. Just call me our dog once with two G's. And you will never see me again. No one. Mark won't. James won't. Um, Cole Shack won't. It'll be over from this point forward. Just because you called me our dog, which is R-S-T. So the R and the T aren't that far away from each other in the alphabet. And it would make me feel like I'm that guy. Really quickly. Yeah, go I ahead. I did an article uh, one time uh, about how much I hated this. And the WGA, uh, they have a written by magazine. Uh, they did. A, I did an interview with written by. This was back then when Walking Dead was coming along. They couldn't find a picture of me, but they found a picture of T Dog, and they put the picture of T Dog that I was that guy. 
And it was a picture of him like, you know, like that, like making a bad decision. Like whatever it was, I don't know what scene it was because I'm trying to oust that. It's like trauma when I was talking about childhood trauma. This is adult trauma. And he had that picture like, ooh, I'm about to do something dumb. And uh, they put that picture with my article. And I haven't written, I haven't read an article and written by ever since that. Friends that are on the cover of that magazine. And they say, hey, did you get your magazine? I say, yeah, I got it. And I never say I didn't read it because I can't because I've been scarred for life by T-Dog, you know. And so I want to go down in history as the greatest question ever. I mean, we've gotten so much mileage out of my zombie question. It is fantastic. You triggered. I've been triggered now. And, you know, my child on the way to get her ice cream is going here by T-Dog. And it's like, you know, why did he drop the keys? That's all he had to do. All he had to do was take the keys and run. And, you know, he's fumbling the keys. And it's like, this is the guy. Glenn can can scale a wall, go underground, make it through a hundred zombies. He can't, T-Dog can't hold the keys. He can't make the keys on the roof where there's no zombies, just people. Just Michael Rooker holding on to, uh, handcuff Michael Rooker on the roof. That's the, all he has to get just, away from, a handcuffed biker. Can't, I can't take any more. Just remember, Merle was a racist who almost killed him. Fine, but he was handcuffed. He was handcuffed. Let him die, man. Let so him die. So it wasn't like... That's not the point. He was handcuffed to the thing, so he wasn't a threat anymore. We could have killed him with any of those things that we talked about. The hatchet would have worked. The hammer would have worked. The screwdriver would have worked. That thing you want me to buy. Any of those things would have worked kill to him. kill him. True, but he was handcuffed, and T-Dog was still afraid of him. He was still afraid of the handcuffed biker racist guy. And I mentioned that he was handcuffed. No, no, handcuffed. I get it now. He's not on a bike. With you know, with badass Tom Safini um, knives and stuff oh, yeah. like in Dawn of the Dead, he's handcuffed. <laughs> he hasn't eaten for a while. We're in a zombie apocalypse, so you know he hadn't had a good meal in a while. So he's a weakened racist biker. So, and T Dog was robust, and he's T Dog. He's got a nickname. He's, it's he's T Dog. I can't believe and, you had a story and they put this picture up there for you. Oh my God! If you had known that day, because people started writing me and it's like, that's not Rodney. That's that's not Rodney. Even people that didn't like me said, you know what, man, you deserve better than that. You deserve better than that. I don't well, know what you did. Like you, you did me wrong in you know '86 or something. But you deserve better. Than be a T dog. Two years post college. I mean, two years post high school. I want to go to a walking dead convention if they still do those things. And meet T dog. Just so I could tell him, you know, bro, you may be the greatest actor ever. You could be the next Denzel, and I want you to do some great things in your career. But we got to talk about this little three season thing that you did that really made my life problem. I think you need to put him in something Um, for do it that way. Okay. Just so I can kill him. Just so I can kill him. Like he could be a a he could have a punk death. Like he's the guy. Yeah. No, he would have an incredible. Okay. He would have. Ooh, I'd kill him a couple of times. I'd bring him back because you thought he was <laughs> just dead. Just to kill him. Again. He just aimed really badly, and he was limping like you thought he was going to live. And then I'd just come up and punch him with his head from uh, the Walking Dead with T Dog because he wouldn't be playing T Dog. Oh my gosh. And then hit him um, and kill him. And they'd say, "What did that have to do with the story?" It'd be absolutely. But we would know. Just be me, cathartically. We would know. Myself of my hatred <laughs> of that character. Not the actor. Actor's fantastic individual. The car- yeah. Never met him. Don't know him from a can of paint. But I do know T Dog well. I know T Dog like a cousin that I hate. 
And so, you know. so uh, in closing, Mr. Rodney Barnes, you've, yeah. saw, you've, you've said that you, can, you can't control what people think about your work, but you can control how much effort you put into your work. Yeah. And it's obvious that you have poured your heart and soul into everything you do. And from the bottom of my heart, uh, thank you for that. And uh, I hope we can have you on in the future and that we can uh, keep this going. And if you ever do do a Coal Shack book, I don't ask for much, but if you can put me in there for one page I getting killed happily, by something, I would, I would happily, love to be. If things go right and the universe is true and kind, Good things may happen. Good things Ooh. may happen. And oh. now that you've mentioned it, I may put T Dog in Philadelphia just so I can bite him in the face. Um, just came up with that idea seven okay. seconds ago. <laughs> Hey. It's one of the best ideas I think I've ever had in my life. We're past your ice cream time, and but she can wait been... now. She can wait now. This is important. She'll be all right, baby. Uh, so if you're waiting on ice cream, I still wanted to ask one more. Yes, <laughs> it's about. What? See, Bradley does this to me when I want to get off of uh, doing a recording. He just always brings up five more things. No, we're you. You may or may not have heard, and I don't know if James told you this in the conversation you had with him recently. But one of the things I'm trying to do, and it's taking shape actually at the University of Nevada, oh, yeah. Las Vegas, and other places, is to actually make a Jeff Rice Memorial Scholarship. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and so it would be Jeff Rice maybe slash Cole Shack or whatever it is. But I have contacted their uh, department there in media slash journalism, and they're interested. And Jeff Rice actually has some coursework that he did there at UNLV. And somewhere down the road, um, I, I could see you, Dwidziak, Adam, all being instrumental in talking about how we'd Spotting like this um, scholarship to look. I would happily contribute anything to that. Um, that that's fantastic. Good. Because I, yeah, I, hey. it, I want it to be journalism, partly, because Jeff was a, a, actually an award-winning journalist before he wrote... Uh, the Night Stalker, and but then also mm-hmm. I think it has to be creative writing. Uh, I think it's got to be both sides yeah. of it. But that's good, and we'll I'll keep in touch with you about Count that. Count me in. Awesome. Count awesome. me in. Count me. And yeah. I will not call so you Rodney, hard dog when I send you my messages. Yeah, man, that's gonna make it hard for me to you know with the R dog and you know you got Mark's name and your name and everybody and Jeff and then R dog and then I'm gonna come. <laughs> it's gonna be me. like seven. I'm gonna come like seven and it's going to be death. You know, and dismemberment. I'm gonna write like in a little notebook. How uh, you did this to yourself, you know, because man. you triggered me. I love it. David. All right, Bradley, back hey, to you. Hey, so I'm gonna wrap this up right here uh, for all things Cold Shack at Cold Shack's Loop. All the and all the things. Want to get in contact with us? Cold Shack's Loop at gmail.com. You can find our number. It's out there on the Facebook site. We're, we're just throwing all that out there. Uh, and, and, Rodney, if you ever come anywhere close to Alabama, that's where I'm from, Nashville, Atlanta, my wife makes a mean pie. She makes a mean cobbler. Anything you want, just tell me. Shoot the me a message. The way you pronounced the word pie made me want it, just the way that you just said pie. it. Actually, triggered. that was another trigger. Um, carbohydrates, in general. if she does anything with carbohydrates, that's sort of, oh I'm going to die. They're going to find me. My kids, the ones that want ice cream, they're going to find me in a pile of carbohydrates. Um, that was what will be the cause of death. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, all you out there, for all things Cold Check, you can find us right here inside the loop.